Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 49 of Through the Years, the podcast that reco- that uh, reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. You'd think after 49 of these episodes, I would either know how to do the intro or do a second take, but nope and nope. I am Trevor Dame. I'm joined, as always, by either the Ebert to my Siskel or the Siskel to my Ebert, Matt Feuerstein. I'm, Matt, hey. I'm the Sievert to your Iskel. <laughs> It's 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 a bird that lives in the sea. Um, that's what I am. <laughs> that's a uh, reference to, uh, I believe, Rick Kobos wrote a good review of the first uh, Ring of Honor show, The Era of Honor Begins, at the Voices of Wrestling website. I think if you look for the lapsed robot ROH, The Era of Honor Begins, you will find it. We also we also both shared it on our Twitter. We retweeted it. It's very good. Yeah. But he, I he, that wasn't me being high and mighty. He referenced us as the Siskel and Ebert of Ring of Honor reviews, which is led to us wondering which of us is Siskel and which of one us is Ebert. Siskel is the Jewish one, if that makes any difference. Yeah, and um, I was trying to think of a joke with Ebert. You know what? My jokes are off this week. It's probably better I don't say anything. So, uh, yeah, um. I guess we have to start the show. Uh, I don't know how much we have to say about this, but we should acknowledge it feels like uh, I wrote on tw- on Twitter today. I'm honestly getting a little scared because it feels like for the last at least four, maybe five episodes of Through the Years, we've had to start every show acknowledging like, boy, the world sure horrible, crazy things are happening and hopefully it doesn't get worse. And then somehow every episode we're back and there's something else that feels so huge. This one, this one is a bit closer to home as far as the topic of the program. Yeah, and that would, of course, would be the speaking out movement where over the last week a bunch of women and, and a couple men, to be fair, but, you know, this is mostly a problem about gender inequality, but a ton of women have come out sharing their stories of abuse within the wrestling industry and, you know, it's been horrible to hear so many stories and I just, I, I think we should just start off by saying you know, we obviously are our support and our hearts go out to those women. You know, we believe them. If you're a person that actually is doubting these stories, I think you should do like the base amount of research about how the statistics that show how many of these stories are true versus how many are false. Because here's a little spoiler. The vast majority of these stories are true. And so many of these women are risking, you know, career ambitions and negative, you know, attacks and all sorts of things to be brave enough to come out with these and yeah, I just, it's awful. And I, um, my sympathy is with them. Yeah. I, I actually asked, uh, Trevor about less than an hour before we started recording, like, should we even record right now? Like, is it even appropriate to, to talk about wrestling in a fun and lighthearted way? I mean, it's just so, it's so disgusting. Um, yes. And complete support to everybody speaking out. Um, you know, I'm, it's just, you know, it's wrestling fans. We, we, online wrestling fans, we know that wrestling is a scummy ass business. Um, um, you know, I mean, if you remember that Death Valley driver sleaze th- thread from back in the 2000s, um, you know, all these, all these different stories. And I think a lot of us wanted to convince ourselves that it's better. And the scary part is, it probably is. Um, um, but, um, you know, but also I have no idea. Um, but you know, you hear you have weeks like this past week, and you think, oh, maybe this is not 
salvageable. And I, you know, it's just a mood that I'm in right now. It feels very similar to the way I felt after um, Chris Benoit. The, and the, that whole situation where he murdered his family and, um, you know, it's like, um, you know, I basically wanted to give up. Like, I uh, I just was like, I went to some wrestling shows after that and I remember just not feeling it. Like, how do I enjoy this? And eventually, selfishly, I guess, you get over it um, because you want to like the thing that you like. But, ha- you know, shows like ours, is like they're supposed to be escapism in some form or fashion, but if the thing that you are using to escape is the thing that you're trying to escape from, I, it just made me question, like, what are we even doing? I don't know. I know, and I, and I apologize for any, like, giggling and laughter. It's sort of my anxious laughter that I'm doing. I'm, I don't find any of this funny. Um, but um, that's sort of how I feel. I'm feeling very uh, dejected and hopeless, and I, you know, my heart goes out to everybody who's speaking out and to anybody who who hasn't yet had the chance to or, you know, for whatever reason uh, has suffered, you know, sexual abuse or otherwise other types of abuse uh, in their, from the wrestling industry. I, I would just say I do actually – I think I, we're kind of reversed because on the racism thing, I, I, and I know you're not really hopeful there, but I felt like I was really down on our, our last episode we were talking about, you know, the racism issue – and I do feel somewhat more hopeful about this just because I, 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 you had a good point where it's like, you know, it might actually be the sad thing is it might actually be when you a little bit better now when you hear about the stories, you know, dating back to the fabulous Moolah era when you uh, Missy, I know Missy Hyatt tweeted this week about stories that happened, you know, decades ago. Just look at just look at some of those like wrestler biographies that came out in the two, early 2000s where some of these guys were just you know, casually bragging about the abuse they inflicted on people and women in particular. And just nobody, you know, I mean, not that nobody thought anything of it, but they certainly weren't made a big deal out of, right? They certainly weren't canceled or whatever the equivalent of canceled was in the early 2000s. Um, You know, now at least we're taking them seriously. And and I think, you know, it, it goes back to what people have been saying, you know, about the racism, which is, you know, it's not that there's more cops killing, you know, black people right now. It's that there's more camera phones recording it. And it's just this, I would imagine it's the same thing with this, which is it, it's always been there. This, you know, systemic abuse against women, this not respecting women, this feeling like you can just use them for sexual gratification against their will. And, you know, it, we're seeing this in every movement. Like I, I would love to, like, I understand and I completely sympathize with people who want to not watch? I completely understand. Don't blame you if you're like I can't watch wrestling now. It's not an escape. It's a reminder of this. But I I know just in my life, like every hobby I have has in the last two or three years had some version of the Me Too movement. You know what? You know books, movies, music, the sports, the legit sports. I follow like every within this week there was. I, I know like there, in the comic book industry, there was people coming out with stories of that. In the minor league hockey, there were stories of systemic abuse. Stand-up um, comedy, although that's yeah, well-trodden ground by now. Has had a flare-up this week, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and I think that speaks to – it's it, even though that's not to let wrestling off the hook, because I think wrestling in some ways has been particularly – horrible in its treatment of women often right in front of our faces through the years no pun intended but you know it's a reckoning we've needed to have for generations and i think we're having it now and i and i guess matt why i do why i do say i have a little bit of hope here is because 
I've never seen this in my lifetime. This many people coming out, this many people's stories being accepted and supported by fans, by each other, by even some promotions who are doing the right thing here. Yeah, a lot of a lot of wrestlers too, you know, give credit where credit is due. And I just think to Matt, like how many times even just doing the show, you know, we're covering wrestling that's 15, 16 years ago. How many times have we heard something either sexist or homophobic or, you know, misogynistic, which I guess is similar to sexism, but, and we've gone one, that is horrible, but two, there's no way any major promotion would be doing that today. Yes. I was thinking the same thing, but I also was thinking like, but maybe we're giving those promotions too much credit because there's just a different type of, misogyny going on where they look the other way at things that maybe were public secrets or open secrets, I should say. I mean, some of these things that are coming out concretely now are things that we've all heard rumors about for years, right? And, you know, even after Me Too, there was still this impulse to, you know, well, if it's not fully out there, you don't, you know, you just don't want to believe it. And you're just hoping that it's not true. And it turns out that it's pretty much always true. Um, you know, I remember with Louis with Louis C.K. Um, when that story first came out, years before it officially came out, it was a blind item in Gawker, and they didn't name yeah, I remember and, that. and they didn't name him. But I, you know, and but every you know most people were like, oh, it's probably it's Louis C.K. You know, and um, and I remember just thinking, well. You know, I was a big fan of his, and I rem- at the time, and I remember being just like, well, you know, it's a blind item, it's a rumor. You can't you can't uh, castigate a guy because it, when there's no official accusation, even, you know. And I just, you know, I just stuck with it the whole time, just hoping. Like, and then of course it was true. And these things, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Unfortunately, um, you know, and you feel, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's just. You know, and I think that there's probably always going to be a part of us that unless something is, you know, there's a really strong accusation made, most of us are going to want to give the benefit of the doubt to our favorites, even though we don't know them personally and don't have any real reason to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's just sort of a defense mechanism and a laziness, right? We don't want to give up the thing that makes us happy, even if it's the right thing to do. You know, and I hope that, you know, we could all be better about that. I, um, but the, the, as far as the misogyny and stuff in Ring of Honor, yeah, I mean, we've been chronicling it from the beginning, right? Um, yeah. And there's a little bit of like a laughing at it that we do because it's just gotten so tiresome. But, you know, when you see the actual – and we're going to talk about some on this very show. Um, <laughs> yes. But when, when you see the um, the consequences of that attitude, that behavior, you know, it's easy to like look at ROH crowds from the early 2000s, look at ECW crowds from the 90s and be like, ha, 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 what a bunch of incels. You know, they're, they hate women. They're laughing, blah, blah, blah. But like – it leads to actual violence and actual abuse, like just to that attitude being permissive um, or being permitted, I should say, and permeating the entire scene. So, you know, I don't want to – I can't really – I don't really have too much more to say, honestly. I, I hope things get better. I hope that, you know, everybody continues to take this stuff seriously and it's no longer allowed and I hope that – I hope that it's not completely tone deaf that we're doing this show, but I know that people want to hear it and I know that – you know, there's there. You know, I don't know. It is what it is. Um, but you know, we're still wrestling fans for better or for worse. So we're going to talk about wrestling. And I guess I'll just say that. Um, again, going back, like when we were teenagers, women's wrestling, at least in the mainstream in North America, was 
models getting barely trained to the point where they were probably in physical danger being trotted out just to be lusted over. And while they're wrestling, you know, women's wrestling still has a ways to go in terms of how it is positioned and the respect it is given, but it is miles better. And I hope the sign of progress that we've seen in in our lifetimes in terms of storylines and women's wrestling can happen behind the scenes. And I, as depressing as all these stories we're seeing this week are, I'm also made a little bit hopeful by seeing so many people support them. And so many of these women supporting each other and saying, you know, this person coming out gave me the strength to realize this was, I was abused or that I can speak out too. And now that I'm seeing this support, you know, it's, it's fulfilling. And that is, the silver lining to a very dark cloud. And I hope that just, I hope that continues. And Matt, I hope in 15 or 20 years, if we're still doing the show and just starting 2005, just as we look back at 15 years ago and go, Holy crap, you know, I can't believe they did stuff back then. I hope we're looking back at right now in 15 more years and go, you know, I can't believe things were so much worse in 2020 than they are here in 2035. Hope you're right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so, yes, we. Uh, if you do want escapism, obviously you should not shy away from this stuff, but our podcast is here when you need it. And of course, not being time sensitive, it's not here when you don't want to think about wrestling. If you'd, you, There's no rush to listen to this show. You can save it for when you feel better. Um, just like there's lots of shows on the Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. Pro Wrestling Only, that is Podcast Network. And yeah, we're going to do this show and... Again, you know, save it for when you, if you're not feeling out to it, I completely understand. So we'll try and cover the wrestling. Matt, we'll try to transition. I think before we get to the show proper that we're covering this episode, there is um, one bit of, it's not really news, but I thought it was interesting that I, we should bring, I should bring up, um, which is something, I don't know if the Pro Wrestling Torch still does this, but back in the old days, they used to do a thing once a year where they would have a vote on where they just ask the fans, like if you were going to draft a wrestling promotion, who would be your top, you know, five top 10 picks. And every year they would publish the results and they would also also give their own results. And I just thought it'd be interesting because, uh, Wade Keller gave his list of, um, top 10 guys. He would form a promotion of in 2004 at this time in our timeline of the shows we're covering. And he included a couple ring of honor wrestlers pretty high. Now, I should note first that uh, Wade gave a caveat here that he wasn't doing it the way everyone else was. He was writing that it was going to be, let me just quote him, with the Xbox PlayStation 2 generation creating more exhilarating matches for their TV screens than they can see watching Raw and SmackDown, I'd sell my tickets around not larger-than-life-sized wrestlers and outlandish personalities, but larger-than-life athleticism and cool youth-oriented personalities. Therefore, I'd leave out anyone taller than six feet and more muscular than AJ Styles. And so with that caveat, here his his top ten, he had AJ Styles number one. Then Matt, here's who he had as number two. This is this kind of shocked even knowing that he was high on him. He had, of all the wrestlers you could pick in 2004, even with that caveat, Jack Evans was his number two choice. That's higher than Rey Mysterio even. Nice. He, 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 and, uh, well, Jack, Evan, Jack Evans was extremely youth-oriented at the time. <laughs> yeah, he was extremely youthful. Uh, Wade wrote, 
This may surprise people, even Ring of Honor fans who watch him regularly, since he isn't even a top featured act in Ring of Honor. He's underutilized by Ring of Honor, in my view, as a sidekick member of the Generation Next faction. Sure, he acts like a cocky street punk goofball, but his in-ring style is so different from anything anyone has seen on the national scene before that I think he'd hook a whole generation of younger fans who think Triple H, Randy Orton, Kurt Angle, and Chris Jericho are okay, but they're not worth scheduling their viewing habits or round or paying money to see in person. Evans, with his graceful triple-jointed gravity-defying twisting and turning, along with his marketable look and a hilarious charisma, will sell tickets and be the poster boy for what's different about my promotion compared to WWE. So you know, you know that classic archetype, the uh, st- uh, the cocky street punk goofball. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe. Maybe promoted the right way. He might have had a point. Jack Evans did have a a personality at the time, and you know I think he's right about analyzing his uh, abilities. Um, I, I don't know that anything could have really broken through too much in 2004. I think in 2004 everyone was sort of like being like, "How do we get back to the boom period?" Now, no, now everyone's like, "Oh, that's not a thing." You know, that's never, that's never, that's that's just not something that can happen. So, you know, but at the time everyone was like, "Oh, look at the, we were just in the promised land a few years ago in terms of success. Let's try to recapture that," and nobody ever did. Um. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And that's a, that's a sad little wrestling thing. But uh, um, number three was Rey Mysterio. I'm just going to speed through this because there's one other Ring of Honor guy he really goes into depth on. Four was Paul London. Five was Sanjay Dutt. Six is Brian Danielson, our boy. And uh, Wade writes, in some ways, he's the total opposite of Sanjay Dutt and Jack Evans. He's pale. He's introverted. He's serious. He's known for his ground attack. Jack and- Evans is pale. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that 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 that's not the exact opposite. In fact, they're both from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, um, he knows he's known for his ground attack. And if you heard that his that in his matches he rarely leaves his feet, you'd think he's the most boring wrestler on the planet. And then you'd watch his match, and it might last thirty or forty minutes. And when it was over, you'd realize your eyes never strayed from the screen. He is one of the most fascinating, utterly gripping performers in the industry today. He'd be a total change of page instead of pace. He said page from most other wrestlers in the promotion, and he'd break the stereotype that only big wrestlers are tough. I definitely rather I definitely rather have him on my side in a street fight than Randy Orton, Big Show, or Triple H. I also think my target audience would rather pay to watch his matches than those others. Matt, would you rather have Brian... Like, I love Brian Danielson. I don't know if I'd rather have him on my side in a street fight than the Big Show. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, probably not. I mean, Danielson has trained in fighting. Um, yes, absolutely. I don't know if that was true at the time, but he has, so I think that makes some difference, right? I always feel like Wade kind of oversells how dry Danielson is. Not just in charisma, but even like the rarely leaves his feet. One of his regular big moves was the flying headbutt. Another was the top rope belly-to-back superplex. Yeah. In the match we're going to cover tonight, he does like a springboard dive into the like the entranceway. Um, you know, he, he yes, he wasn't a high flyer, but although actually initially if you, you know read his book and hear him talk, like very early on – when he was first starting, he was more of a high flyer, actually, and he kind of changed that, maybe in part to he was suffering a lot of concussions at a very early point in his career. But um, 
you know, he, De- Brian can can fly for sure. But yeah, I mean, clearly we saw that what made him successful in, in a mainstream level was not the you know like the the low key aspect, you know, no pun intended, of Brian yeah. Danielson. It was he became a larger than life personality, and I think you know at the time not just Wade but a lot of people underestimated Brian's ability to do that. Like, especially going back again to the match we're going to cover that he's into on this show, he shows plenty of charisma, you know, yep. more than a lot of guys on the card. So Absolutely. Going through the rest of this list, Christopher Daniels was seventh for Wade. Petey Williams was eighth. Um, number nine was low key. And then Kid Cash was 10th. So, I mean, I would watch that promotion. And then I, I think I just want to scroll down to, I believe some Ring of Honor people did make late in the fan voting, the overall voting of all the readers who could put in their votes. And I just want to see quickly just to see where the general opinion was at at this point. Um, let me see if I can find it. Uh, AJ Styles was fifth, not really Ring of Honor anymore. CM Punk made 10th. And uh, Wade wrote, he made the biggest jump of anyone in the top 10. He is the first Ring of Honor wrestler on the list. And uh, It's wild to me that Wade would think that like you want to build a cool youth-oriented promotion in 2004 with Ring of Honor guys and Punk wouldn't be on his list. Like, yeah. that, like, that's, like that's wacky. Like Punk was clearly the, like, the one with the biggest star power. I mean everyone knew it, um, including him. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely him. And the only other wrestler that uh, – Ring of Honor wrestler that made the list, or the top 20 at least, was Samoa Joe. He moved up from 48 in 2003 to the top 220 in uh, 2004. That makes and sense. he actually finished ahead of Undertaker, Edge, Ric Flair, Big Show, JBL, Booker T, and Hulk Hogan, among others. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that Punk and Joe were definitely considered by most people, I think, probably at this point, the the two brightest prospects. And I know even Mick Foley was trying to sell WWE on both of those guys. You know, they talk about that in their shoot interview that they did together, Joe and Punk. So definitely they were kind of, I think, the two foremost in people's minds. Um, and that brings us to the show, what we're covering, except there was a pre-show or not a pre-show, but an afternoon show, and we did not watch it. It is, um, I believe it is on the Ring of Honor Uncensored DVD, which has a lot of pre-show matches and some of the unshown kind of bad. Uh, are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure it's on there? I, I didn't think they went past 2003 on that. I'm not sure. I, I believe, well, I know, I know that, I know the pre-show for Final Battle 03 is on there. I know, I, I believe Shane, Shane Hagedorn DM'd me this month, and he said, oh, you're going to review our, my first match, my bad first match, and I, I had to inform that we don't really cover pre-show stuff on this show, otherwise yeah. the episodes would probably be like once every six months, <laughs> And uh, but I believe he said that it was on the Uncensored, and I never double-checked, cause I, but... I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. But either way, it's kind of useless information to have because like most Ring of Honor DVDs, that's long out of print. I have to imagine that DVD especially being such a niche thing was it's probably even harder to find than like a regular standard issue Ring of Honor event DVD. Yeah, but yeah. They ran a whole um, afternoon show in front of 200 fans. Um, Mike Johnson wrote up a whole report because he was there live for both shows, so I'll just go through what he said. Because there was some interesting, noteworthy things about this, Matt. Um, Mike Johnson wrote, 
Ring of Honor drew about 200 fans for their afternoon event, made up mostly of students from the Ring of Honor Academy having their debut matches, followed by the Midnight Express question and answer session. As irony would have it, the student who stood out the most turned out to be Ricky Landell, a Steve Carino trainee who looks as if he stepped out of 1985, down to the George South satin jacket and Ronnie Garvin towel. Landell looks as if he's been stunning his 1980s NWA tapes as every move meant something to the point one might believe he was watching a rookie Barry Windham. Um, so yeah, this, this was technically kind of the first public matches, I believe for these ring of honor students, the very first class of the ring of honor school, CM, CM Punk's first class too. This was the first class in general, but also I think CM Punk might've done a second class. I'm not sure. I forget now, but, uh, Going through the card, Rock and Rebel and Greg Matthews beat Scott Cardinal and Jerk Jackson in four minutes, 11 seconds. Uh, Johnson says, as short as this was, this was pretty entertaining and not a bad opener at all. It seems like it was a million years ago that Matthews was such a sympathetic babyface baby face during the first Tough Enough. Um, Jerk Jackson is, uh, as we mentioned before, a Bobby Fish, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and also I think we should point, just remind people, I imagine Rock and Rebel was on this card because this was at a point when Ring of Honor was using Rock and Rebel's Philadelphia um, promoting license or whatever. And so as a condition of that, they had to – Rock and Rebel wanted to work these shows. So they would find little ways. Usually they didn't make the DVD to get them on these shows. So here he is opening up the afternoon. Um Ricky Landell and Alex Law, who are Steve Carino students, beat Anthony Franco and Evan Starsmore, CM Punk students, in 4 minutes 28 seconds. Mike writes another solid match. Uh, the Carnage crew of Logan DeVito beat Shane Hagedorn and Jesse Robinson and Matt Turner, who are also students of the CM Punk ROH school, in 6.52 of a handicap match. Uh, Mike writes, the students must have had every friend they ever met in attendance as one side of the building gave them a huge pop and chanted for them endlessly. Either that or Ring of Honor hired USA Pro's Frank Goodman and he bought the ticket sellers and he brought the ticket sellers with him. I expected an all-out beatdown of the students, initiation style, but the crew pretty much worked them over with some stiff shots to the back and some hard tosses into the guardrail while working with them in the ring. Afterwards, the crew told them they were proud of them. Then came CM Punk defeated Davey Andrews in five, 5 minutes, 19 seconds. Um, Andrews was said to have been the best student of the lot. He seemed to have more of a look than some of the other students. And Davey Andrews, I did a little bit of research, Matt, before today's episode, but I didn't dig in too deep. But he was interesting where he was apparently who Punk considered to be his star pupil of the first class to the point that you know, he wrestles him on this pre-show. And he had like a one-year career and just – vanished yes I, uh, shane hagedorn often talks on his show about on a, honorable mention about like where is davy andrews can anyone help us find davy andrews yeah he, like if you look at his cage match he has a bunch of matches in ring of honor he wins their top student or whatever cup he he gets some fairly regular work in iwa mid-south and it's just a one-year career and then he's gone even though he was apparently a, you know i i don't remember a lot about dv andrews i'm sure we'll see some of his matches yeah yeah we're, we're gonna we're gonna see a decent amount of him over the next year or so of uh but, of uh shows but yeah it's it just one of those guys you know a lot of people in wrestling they get a taste and decide it's not for them or other things come up but 
Uh, next up, Dunn and Marcos beat Special K's Deranged and Cloudy. Cloudy subbing for Dixie, who was there later in the night. In 8 minutes, 40 seconds, uh, Mike says this is a decent back-and-forth bout. And then finally, in your main event, Ring of Honor Pure Champion John Walters defeated Alex Shelley in 14 minutes, 31 seconds, when Shelley tapped out after using all his rope breaks. And they said they made it clear to announce the rules and the rope breaks over the house mic, which added greatly to the match. And then after that match, uh, Mike writes that the crowd was shifted over to the bleachers for the Midnight Express reunion with Jim Cornette, Stan Lane, Bobby Eaton, and Dennis Condry. Condry looks like a Southern Baptist preacher now. Lane still looks like he can go and beat up anyone on the roster. Cornette and Lane, as expected, dominated the question and answer session. There were two negatives to the convention, one of which was the sound system, which absolutely sucked to the point that Ring of Honor may not be able to release the video. The other was that due to the magnitude of the building, it wasn't an intimate atmosphere at all, which led to a lot of people milling around and talking to themselves as it was harder to keep attention. Some talking fans, talking to themselves? <laughs> that's what he writes. Uh, <laughs> sounds, sounds like a wrestling audience, sure. <laughs> uh, some, some of the fans seemed as if they were more impressed with putting themselves over as well, although I did think it was cool there were fans from California, Japan, and Australia there. For $15, one can't really complain, though. Ring of Honor was happy with the turnout, as they actually expected less for the afternoon, which admittedly was their own fault for overshadowing the Midnights with the Mick Foley and Jushin Liger announcements. So yeah, it was 15 bucks, I believe, for the Q&A and uh, the, the pre-show, this entire afternoon show. Yeah. And I, I believe, I'm not 100% sure that the Q&A never did get released, because uh, Dr. Keith Lipinski, former guest of the show, he mentioned that... Uh, he, he said to me that uh, he asked a question during the Q&A that got Jim Cornette kind of ranting, which was, do you think you can have a Midnight Express reunion without um, Bart Gunn and Bob Holly?" And apparently Jim Cornette went off on that. <laughs> but uh, he said that he, – I think he also mentioned that he didn't think the show was released because of the audio problems. So, yeah, an entire Q&A that probably they were hoping they could sell – I assume is lost to history. Um, yeah, so that was a, that's a good pre-show. But uh, Mike Johnson actually left something important out. Did you know, little known fact, as part of this pre-show, there was a, a Paul Simon concert, and, and like he just he just played for the live audience, and um, he actually wrote a special song just for the occasion. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Well, I would not give you false hope on the future of Special K. But the Midnight Express reunion is just a couple hours away. I don't remember the rest of the words. <laughs> that was more than enough than that. You have the voice of an angel. It's like you <laughs> with the voices of the night. Um, and that brings us to the show, the main show, the show we actually got to watch. The Midnight Express reunion. It was just called Midnight Express reunion. It took place October 2nd, 2004. That's the name of the song also, by the way. Just, just <laughs> It does sound like the name of a song from like the 1970s, like you'd hear on a soft rock station today. Yes. Um, John Tesh introducing it and all. Anyway, it took place October 2nd, 2004 at the Pennsylvania National Guard Armory in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in front of a reported crowd of 650 fans. So they were back out of the Ramada that they were in, in like Essington, Pennsylvania. This is, uh, this would also be that that was at um at testing the limit that was their last Philly show so this is a dip back to the old venue 200 fans more because testing the limit did a report 450 so 
maybe partly the new build back to the better building, partly back to or having the Midnight Express, partly you have one hell of a main event announced for the show. Um, and this was actually the Midnight Express reunion was actually announced at testing the limit, I guess, to spur ticket sales for the next show at that show. Uh, Dave wrote in the Observer at that point that uh, the big announcement was that on October 2nd in Philadelphia, they would have the Midnight Express of Bobby Eaton, Stan Lay, and Dennis Condry managed by Jim Cornette. Dave wrote, I believe this is going to be the first booking the three take together since Cornette and Condry patched up their past diff- problems and talked about doing selected m- matches back together. So that, that's an important thing to note where so many of these guys, you know, have done reunions and stuff, but I do believe this was like the first reunion of all three members. So you had, you know, the original Midnight Express and then the Stan Lane iteration and you had all of them together with Cornette, you know, and this was going to be the start, I guess, of a idea where they were going to do some matches in the South together and things like that. And this was basically the kickoff to kind of a, uh, I don't know what you call it, like a nostalgia tour, I guess, but, um, there, there's so many nostalgia like conventions and stuff now that like it's almost hard to picture why this would be such a big draw like with 2020 eyes I guess like or feelings but yeah at the time it was it was pretty novel. There's a couple of comments about like the nature of old wrestlers we'll get to during that segment that I think are kind of like hilarious given where we are in wrestling today but I guess I'll save them for then but. Uh, <laughs> um, Wade Keller got a bunch of quotes from uh, Gabe Sapolsky on this show that we'll use a couple. They're nothing too amazing, but I just thought it adds a little color to the show. And uh, Wade wrote in The Torch, Regarding the Midnight Express reunion in Philadelphia, Gabe Sapolsky tells The Torch, What made me want to bring in the Midnight Express? They are one of the greatest and most influential tag teams in wrestling history. They help pioneer the style you see in Ring of Honor today. They are two true legends, and anytime you can bring in Hall of Famers like that, you take advantage of the opportunity. Jim Cornette came to us with the proposal because he wanted to reunite everyone in Philadelphia on a Ring of Honor show, and we took him up on his offer. So that's the other thing is Gabe has been saying that, you know, it was actually Cornette's idea that, like, hey, we're getting back together, we'd like to you know, debut it at Ring of Honor. It wasn't the other way around. It was actually Cornette seeing that as a good venue for them to come out. A couple other quick notes, and then we can finally get to the show. The Observer mentioned that the the song we should bring up is there was only six matches on this show, which is kind of a rarity for Ring of Honor cards. And Dave wrote in his recap of the show, they only did six matches on the show and went with longer matches with the feeling that their main eventers are better doing 30 minute matches than 15 minute matches, which. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's one of those things where I honestly just shrug and go, uh, to quote Matt Forrestine, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I just go like, I mean, I've seen them have great 15 minutes. I think every match kind of needs a different time. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think anyone is like, yeah, you should really just stick to the 30-minute matches. That's it's kind of your ni- your niche. Like, I, I don't think any, anyone fits that description. Uh, and then Mike Johnson also wrote, prior to the show, the entire Midnight Express was signing photos for $10 being the cover for all four signatures. That sounds actually like a pretty good deal. Yeah. Uh, Corn- Cornette was also selling a six-tape set of the Express that he put together himself for $100. Matt, what a throwback it was to think back of the days where, like, people would buy a $100 six-tape set. Like, compared yeah. to, like, the price of seeing old wrestling has gone down to almost pretty much free now. It's crazy to think that's what we used to willingly spend. I mean, WWE Network, not to promote those horrible people, but, <laughs> um, you know, you have every pay-per-view ever for, like... Um, 
not a moderate monthly fee and all this other stuff, it kind of, yeah, it kind of makes everything else seem quaint. Although, you know, I miss those days still. It, it did feel more special when you didn't have everything at, the, at your yeah. fingertips. When you did splurge and go, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get every match of the Rockers now for like half of my rent, and you know <laughs> you were so excited, and now you can just literally watch it all for free on YouTube at like the click of a button. But yeah, um, so the DVD opens with the, some footage of that autograph signing. We see Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express there all in a row, signing dutifully signing autographs. Uh, Cornette mugs for the camera at one point by making a goofy face and shoving a Sharpie up his nose. Uh, you can see his future wife, who has been the subject of some allegations this week, lounging directly behind him, looking bored out of her fucking mind, which is was kind of a funny thing. And I guess they just want to show right at the start that, hey, like, Midnight Express are here. And that brings us to the opening match. The Ring of Honor tag team titles were on the line. The Havana Pitbulls of Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero scored to the ring by Julius Smokes. Successfully defended the titles when they defeated Special K of Angel Dust and Izzy, who were scored to the ring by Becky Bayless, Cheech, Cloudy, Deranged, Dixie, and Lacey. They won in 11 minutes, 29 seconds, when Reyes pinned Angel Dust after he and Romero hit the demolition decapitation knee drop they had been doing. Um, Matt... We haven't been super hot on the uh, on the Havana Pitbulls run in Ring of Honor up to this point. Although I do think we both agree that their last match with Special K was probably our favorite of their run so far as a tag, at least. What do you think about this kind of a semi rematch? This obviously swaps uh, Dixie for Angel Dust. Okay, well, before I get to the action, uh, a few comments. Um, first of all, the opening that you uh, of the show where they showed the Midnight Express signing, they had a whole little thing where Jim Cornette like goofily like. Uh, stuck up uh, a marker up his nose and was just like laughing like a little child and it was like what an intense way to start a major night of wrestling like people just like <laughs> writing on paper and like playing with pens and markers and sharpies like i i just it was it was a weird way to start the show but it did show that the midnight express were there and reuniting so um <laughs> i guess it is on brand um a lot of what i wrote down for this um because i we i wrote i watched this match a few weeks ago um was stuff about related to some of the treatment of women and at the time i was like ha 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 look how look how wacky they were back then and sexist and now it's like oh god all of this stuff just takes on a very dark tone um like one of the very first things that happened in the night was julius smokes was in the corner of reyes and romero and angel dust and izzy had becky in their corner and smokes just yelled across the ring hey becky let me suck your tits yeah, I, I don't know. Then there was um, uh, let me Mark try and, Nolte at a night on commentary. Yeah, Mark Nolte. Uh, um, okay, um, so Mark Nolte, because so the you know the big angle at this time for Special K, as Paul Simon sang about, was um, <laughs> that there was two factions growing in Special K. There was the Lacey faction; they were the heels, and there was the Becky Bayless faction, and they were the faces. And um, Becky and Lacey did not like each other. So Lacey was in the corner of Izzy. She was his girlfriend. And Mark Nolte just hated the concept of Lacey. He hated that she existed. He said he was. they were talking about how he, she was distracting Izzy. And he goes, this is Nolte. He goes, this is the problem with women playing fantasy football in wrestling. The only thing Lacey knows about pro wrestling is that she can't do it. And he said it like real angry. And I remember thinking like, Lacey's a wrestler. 
Um, she she was not bad at all. No, like, no. I mean, know, she was. She had some good matches. Yeah, I mean, she was this is new at new at wrestling. I'm sure she wasn't as good as she would be, but like she was a wrestler. Um, and then and then Gabe jumps in and says that Lacey has been nothing but trouble for Special K, which is fair based on the also misogynistic booking, but not. Uh, but you know, it was it wasn't as intense as what Nolte said. Then later on, Nolte's like. Women can be just as addictive as any narcotic, and, and and then and then Gabe goes, and then he just for no reason he throws in. Well, Lacey is absolutely smoking. Um, I I just <laughs> that is a good summary of like their different levels of treatment of women because Gabe was always doing kind of like a Jerry Lawler ripoff about women. Where he's like, boy, yeah. I'd sure like to you know share a bed with her. Like, look how ador- hot she is. Where Mark Nolte always like acted like women had wronged him like a lot. Like it was always a more bitter kind of. Oh like, yeah, he seemed don't real. Don't let a woman know where you live. Like, he seemed ever. real bitter. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, you know, I mean, like, there's something funny to it, you know, but like, also, like, it just, it's much darker now, like, you know, just with everything that's on our minds, you know what I mean? Like, uh, um, as far as the match, I did not like it as much as I liked the special K um, versus uh, Havana Pitbull's match from uh, Scramble Cage Melee. Um, I just didn't think there was as much to it. you know, Izzy try try to flurry of big moves, and when he, and like there's some sloppy stuff, like he falls when he's trying to land on his feet after a flip. But he's mostly he mostly does pretty well. Like he does a really good moonsault drop kick on Romero that I liked. Um, um, and like Romero is trying to intimidate Angel Dust, so uh, so Angel Dust slaps him. So Romero just gets aggressive and slaps him back. Um, at one point, Angel Dust does like a running arm twist, which is not a move you see very often where you like run at somebody and twist their arm. I should try that sometime. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought like Reyes did a really big backdrop on Angel Dust, um, and that's kind of leads the Rottweilers to take over. Um, Smokes keeps um, yeah, um, getting involved. Like he holds Angel Dust on the outside so Reyes can kick him. Um, and Gabe criticizes uh, the Pitbulls for cheating, but Nolte fairly points out that the Midnight Express use a lot of the same shady tactics. So it's like if you're going to be celebrating the Midnight Express, you really can't be can't be too hard on uh, illegal double team moves, right? Um, but um, you know, a lot of the the good stuff um, is from Izzy. Actually, at one point, he even screams to show fire, which is not something you really see from Izzy too often. He does a big running kick to Romero's head. He does an unassisted slice bread number two, but Reyes breaks that up. Um, and then Romero comes back with just like slaps and kicks and goes crazy, and he goes right into an arm submission, and uh, Angel Dust breaks that up. Um, Reyes breaks up uh, Special K double Boston Crab. Um, and Angel just does like an electric chair driver type thing on Reyes, but Romero makes the save. At this point, uh, Gabe is criticizing the referee for losing track of the legal man. But like, <laughs> isn't this ROH? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like every match. <laughs> that's been one negative on this really good run of shows, which is they they are so inconsistent about caring the refs and the announcers about caring about legal men and noticing and not caring. Like we've seen matches where the ref has been like, nope, this pin can't count. And then there are matches like this where it doesn't count. And the announcers care. And then there are matches like this where the announcers don't care. Like it's uh, just, I have a rant about that coming up in a later match, actually, ah, in terms perfect. of legality. Um, but um, yeah, Reyes does like rolling Germans um, and he bridges on the third, but Izzy does a cabrada and breaks up the bridge. 
And then Smokes trips Izzy, pulls him out, and Reyes takes that opportunity to do to put Angel Dust on his knee, and Romero comes off with the knee drop for the win. I, I, there were some good moves. I, I just felt like it didn't really hold together. Like it just felt a little all over the place. Um, didn't totally click. But on the other hand, it kept up the Rottweilers' momentum, and it gave an opportunity for this post-match angle, which so it had it. It served its purpose. The action was fine. It wasn't a bad match, but. I just it just didn't do anything for me overall. Yeah, I, I thought this. I agree. I thought this was average. It was not nearly as good as the last Special K uh, Pitbulls match. Uh, yeah, there just wasn't like you said as much to it. I also felt like even though Izzy did a lot of cool stuff, like you mentioned, his execution on this night he was a little bit off. And usually, one of the things that stands out about Ixy is I think of the special. K guys, he's usually like the guy that's most on point, at least at this time, in terms of, you know, looking smooth. And this was a night where in terms of just hitting everything really well, he was even though he was still doing some really cool moves, he was a bit off on that. And, you know, it keeps being this pattern, but like the Pitbulls keep I, I hate the term video game wrestlers because so many people that use that use that for uh, wrestlers I like or they they're kind of just the worst like old grumps, but like the Havana Pitbulls watching them in this match, really, I did think video game wrestlers in the sense that their execution is really crisp and cool. I mean, really crisp and good. Their, their moves are that they have some cool moves. I thought, you know, Ray is in particular had some good looking stuff here. Like you mentioned, I thought the standout spot of the whole match was those rolling Germans from Reyes and then holding the bridge and letting, you know, Izzy do the quebrada onto him. I thought that's a really cool spot. And, uh, but yeah, it's just all their moves. It just seems like there, there's nothing in between them. It just, it just feels like a video game. It feels like they have a set moves that they perform always like pretty much perfectly. And they just kind of come out in a random, somewhat random order. And they're just kind of spanned out there and there's not much in between them. And yes, they do have Julius smokes to provide some of that personality that they're lacking, but uh, some of their matches don't really have a story. They just, and they don't really even have a flow to them. It's just, and I keep feeling like I must be missing something because everywhere I go in like reading these old newsletters and reading interviews with wrestlers from this era, you know, and I know they're probably better outside of ring of honor, but you see everyone praising these guys as like one of the best tag teams going at this point and watching them in ring of honor, including some lengthy matches with good teams, like, you know, Punk and Cabana, the Briscoes numerous times. Like, I just am not seeing it. It's also just possible that what they did was seen as cooler back then than it does seem now, you know? Yeah. Like, just like that their stuff just was really good, but it doesn't age well, which which can happen. Def- definitely. That, that's a great point, too. Um, I also thought this was a, a match where it kind of hit a bad middle ground where I felt like the Pitbulls weren't dominant enough to really look like the scary badasses who just destroyed Special K. But at the same time, the ending, by the end, like the final stretch, they did look so dominant. They looked dominant enough that like Special K didn't look like there were anything close to a match for them. It was like this weird moment where I didn't feel like any team gained for it. I didn't feel like Special K really did enough for you. Like, man, they lost, but... They sure impressed me by showing so much fight. Well, also and keep I, in, keep in mind that this this special that those two guys were not going to team together anymore. That's that's worth yeah. noting. Um, you know, so they they weren't trying to make them look like an impressive team. Also, yeah, but in that point, then I would almost prefer maybe like just kill them in five minutes. You know, where here they were trying to have you know that's like another quirk of Ring of Honor, which is 
they're built on selling you good wrestling matches. So even matches like this, you're not going to see a ton of squashes because you're, you're trying to sell good wrestling matches. And also a lot of these guys aren't getting paid much. So they're being sold like in a chance to show what they can do. So it's kind of hard to tell guys you're going to come in, you're going to wrestle five minutes. You're going to do almost nothing. And that'll be your match here for the month. That's, I understand how that's kind of hard to do as well. Um, a couple other things, maybe not quite related to the match. We should point out the lighting for the show is it seems Matt, there have been so many shows where the lighting is bad. And I think the almost impressive thing is how many different ways the lighting can be bad. Like yeah. every time it's something like this time, it's not, it's like everything's kind of this yellowish overblown tint. Yeah. It's this weird. It's, it's, it's like the weird orangey thing. Like, what is that? <laughs> And it feels like so much of the match is – like so much of the time when they go to the uh, hard camp, it's only shot from one side of the ring. Like it feels like 90% of the hard camp st- – I mean not the hard camp but the handheld cam stuff. Even though you see handheld cams on multiple sides of the ring, I don't know if maybe the way the lighting was set, they figured out, oh, we can't use a lot of this. Oh, like- no. I, I can answer that. In ROH DVDs, they pretty much only – always only use one of the two handheld cameras like one of them was just a backup so actually on every show we've watched almost they have not used both handheld cameras there are like a couple matches where they use all three cameras like joe versus kobashi i know they do but it's very unusual to see that third camera angle but i really noticed something weird about that here and also matt maybe i'm crazy and in looking back i didn't notice this in later matches so either i got used to it or maybe they fixed it but am i crazy to say that on the first match it looked like the the hard cam was crooked that I, like the ring was kind of on a slant almost i have to go back and see um i have to go back and see um i, did, I don't remember I did, not, I did not notice that in in later matches yeah, I'm gonna. I'll go back. I'm gonna go rewatch that because I okay. I totally believe that, that that's something that they did and would do. But it, it, it's pretty inc- it's pretty incredible. And yeah, the it does not make the show unwatchable, but it's definitely annoying. Um, the lighting situation on this show, I would say. And uh, yeah, so that's that average match. And something else I got to mention is ring of honor, the newswires. I usually try and work any tidbits I can get from them into the show. For some reason, the last, this whole next period of ring of honor, the archive.org pulls up nothing from a lot of these, uh, months. And it's really hard, but Mike Johnson in his live report did mention, and I'm sure this was probably mentioned on the newswire that special K, which has been in a, in a slump since March is now coming out without their techno music until they win a match. So that was like an actual little part of their story, which is supposed to, which is like, you know, they're not going to treat themselves to the techno music until they win. Um, so after the match, we see the two squabbling sides of Special K. They start getting into a fight, and they almost get into an outright physical brawl. Becky has to be held back, and we can hear the crowd chant, fuck, fuck her up, Becky, fuck her up. So the crowd it was interesting. The crowd was actually fairly behind Special K during the match, and they definitely have picked a side and the side that I think is intended as the face side. So it was interesting to hear how vocal they were for that. And uh, that brings us to match two, a four-corner survival match. Jimmy Rave, who was escorted to the ring by Diablo Santiago, Oman Tortuga, and Prince Nana, defeated BJ Whitmer, Josh Daniels, and Trent Acid in 9.51 when he pinned Trent Acid after he hit the Rave Clash. And Prince Nana did his usual gimmick for this era where late in the match, Jimmy's losing. Nana grabs the house mic, starts encouraging Rave over it. You know, Rave makes a big comeback and wins. 
Um, it's, it's, it's funny, Matt, this match, um, normally in my ring of honor multi-mans, what this rewatch has taught me is I like them to be big, crazy spot fists with the more guys, the merrier. This was more of just four guys, um, like not doing like the, I mean, it was fast paced and they were going in and out and they did a lot of the four of the multi-man tropes. In fact, you had the, the dive train and the spot where everyone does a big move and then they all lie down in the ring at the same time to get the crowd applause the match broke down the way all these multi-mans do in ring of honor but at the same time it was more suplex oriented it was less you know it, it was more kind of in the middle of the ring oriented and i was surprised how much i liked it i thought this was an outright good one of those matches i thought everyone looked good but particularly i thought josh daniels had a really good night here i thought his wrestling looked really good he broke out a really nice tope for a guy with that much bulk on him even though he's not high in stature. He's definitely got that, you know, packed with muscle build. Um, I, I thought you, even though there wasn't much story in this match, I thought the fact that you could see that Daniels was always going after, uh, Jimmy rave being the fact that Daniels was a former embassy member and rave was now gave you like a tiny amount of story to it. And it was just a lot of suplexes, a lot of action. It never slowed down. And like all the good versions of these matches at nine minutes, it doesn't get too long where you just start going, this is numbing and, uh, kind of, you know, not a, a big significant way to end Trent acids, uh, gimmick of King of the multi-mans. But at the same time, this was, a you know, a sign that his little push was pretty much over. So, uh, Matt, what did you think? I pretty much agree with everything you said. Like, look at these four guys and say they're going to have a four-way. I would not be like, oh, yeah, that's going to be good. But not that I would say it was bad, but like, no, it turned out to be a quite good match. Um, I didn't expect to see Daniels back at all at this point. You know, I thought they had just kind of moved on from him. But he was good here, and I actually thought that Rave was really good. I was, I'm surprised as I watched how quickly Rave's whole shtick comes together. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's really kind of a successful gimmick right away. Um, you know, they don't keep on with Nana, you know, talking on the mic, you know, for, you know, which he did in this match and the other recent ones. Yeah. But, like, it's really become, a, like, a fully formed gimmick. And, and Rave has done a really good job. And Nana's done a really good job. Um, you know, they're both getting over. I um I like the way they started the match with uh, Rave and Daniels doing these lockups because they were like really rough looking in a good way lockups like remember the uh, the lockups that uh, Danielson and London did in their match like it kind of reminded me of that like these intense collar and elbow lockups and I, and I thought that was really cool um, I also thought Acid was more on point than usual here like he just looked really solid um, um, as far as some commentary stuff. Um, Gabe kept talking about how Rave was going to get rubbed down or got rubbed down when he was in Ghana. Like, you know, that all of Nolte, all of uh, um, um, Nana's women were rubbing him down with oils. And Nolte goes, we're not going to talk about rub downs all match, are we? And I was like, this time, Mark, I'm on your side. But then, then almost immediately he goes – what is this useless women at ringside night when danger comes out? And I'm like, all right, you lost me again, man. You had me for a second, but you lost me. But they did have Alice in danger out there. Um, they had her um, for the destruction of BJ Whitmer. Uh, yeah. Cheering for, and she wore that wacky dress with the gloves. Like she just looked like a train wreck. And that was the point. Um, yeah. But no, I thought it was a, I thought it was a genuinely good match. Like like just like solidly good. Like if you watch this match, you will like it. <laughs> and I didn't again, this is Josh Daniels, Jimmy Rave, um BJ Whitmer and uh 
and Trent Acid. So, like, I don't know if that's the match that somebody would be drawn to now. I'm sure some people would, actually, but I wouldn't, and it turned out to be very good. Yeah, so definitely if you're watching this show and you're, like, thinking about skipping around, this isn't a match I would say worth going out of your way to see, but if you're like us and look at that on paper and go, eh, I can skip that, it's like – it's not a bad way to spend nine minutes at all. Like you're not, I don't think you're going to regret watching this. It's, it's, it's definitely a, like a fun watch. Um, I, I want to bring up something about Martin Nolte's commentary too, not to make this too much pick on Martin Nolte night, but like, I mean, I mean, he didn't have a great night, so it's no, fine. This, this was a bad night for Mark. And I actually feel like it's a weird thing. I was actually, that's a good reminder. I want to ask you this, Matt. I remember, I think the first show we saw Mark Nolte, we remarked like, oh, he has not bad chemistry for Ga- with Gabe, like for his very first show calling with him. I think if anything, like it's not gotten terrible, but it's a weird example of, of I think actually like Mark Nolte has actually gotten less chemistry and s- worse as an announcer, like not a hugely, but like rather than start off okay and get better, he like has started off okay and with it more experience has kind of, I think, regressed a little. He seems like, like a weird thing. It seems like he just has these like hangups about certain things about the promotion that he's just going to like not get over. And based on that, he kind of makes – his commentary's gotten worse as he's leaned on that a little bit more. I don't know. Maybe I'm overanalyzing, but that's how it seems to me. No, I, I think that's because that goes into what was going to be my major point here, which is I look at my notes. It was just Mark Nolte's biggest problem. I said, in addition to his misogyny um, is he keeps working. What I, the way I would put it is he keeps working against the stories that Gabe is clearly trying to tell both on commentary and in his booking, like in this match at one point, and there's some bigger examples later, but in this match at one point, uh, Gabe talks about how uh, Josh Daniels rejected the embassy and he wanted to win on his own. And you know, that's a very, you can clearly see why Gabe is doing that. Even as a fan, he's trying to contrast that with Jimmy Rave, which is Jimmy Rave gladly joined the embassy and, you know, he wants to he, – he doesn't mind as a heel using their help to win matches where, you know, he's trying to put over um, – put over Daniels as a good face, you know, where he didn't want the help. And so after Gabe says that, Nolte says something like, well – I think there's more to why Daniels left the embassy than that, like kind of implying with his tone that maybe like he was bitter or had a falling out. And then later, um, it, it like totally undercuts Gabe, clearly what Gabe is trying to say there. And then later on, um, you know, during this match where Daniels is looking good and he's a face and Gabe is trying to put him over, Nolte just goes out and goes, Daniels sure hasn't done well since leaving the embassy. And Gabe just, you can hear him immediately respond like, putting over Daniels really hard, like, but he's looking good tonight, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, there's so many examples on these shows, I think going to what you said, Matt, where it is clear what the, the what you what the announcers are supposed to say based on the booking and stuff. And Nolte just goes in the opposite direction. Like he just goes rogue and is like, nope, this doesn't make sense. And then Gabe almost every time, you can always just hear Gabe immediately trying to encounter and move it back to where he clearly intends it to go. But at the same time, obviously, Gabe didn't mind it that much because he kept Nolte around for a few more months after this. Well, so there's something he likes about him. Well, how many announcers they went through. Like, maybe he was just, like, a little gun-shy, like, yeah. like got to keep this guy because oh, we're not getting Donnie B back. Like, yeah, when he found uh, – when he, when he was able to get Dave Prezak full-time, bye-bye Mark Nolte. A couple other little notes. Um, I thought uh, Rave took a great bump on a big clothesline from Daniels. Um, Gabe keeps calling Rave's running knee the Shining Wizard again, even though CM Punk corrected him on the last show. So 
that one show trend, positive trend did not stick. Um, and I would say the one kind of flaw in this match is, is near the end, there's a moment where BJ Whitmer hits a big series of moves on Daniels, ending with his finisher, which is the wrist clutch exploder. And then um, he proceeds to lie on the mat for a few seconds. And I guess you could say he's selling exhaustion, but it's if you watch in the corner, if you watch this match, Acid is like waiting for him the entire time, like clearly for the next big move in the finish they've planned. And it just felt like he forgot or was out of sync or something. It was just like kind of a weird one little awkward moment in the match. And another thing, if you want to watch this match look to look for is after the match, it looks like someone, probably a fan throws a drink in the ring and you can see Alice in danger, like go over and talk to that fan, like break character, I think. And like go over and be like, what the fuck are you doing? It's like an interesting little Easter egg. If you, if you want to look for something like that. And finally to end this, uh, Matt, you talk about how quickly Rave has progressed. Mike Johnson had some fairly, uh, similar thoughts watching this match live. He wrote, Six months ago, Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky told me Jimmy Rave would be over and a hot character for the company. I thought, as I have many times, that he had lost his mind. Well, Rave isn't one of the hottest characters in the company, but with the addition of Prince Nada, a storyline where the fans cost him a spot in the company, one of Nana's robes, and a pretty smug heel persona, Rave has made worlds of improvement. So... Yeah, you definitely had people singling, like, noticing, like, oh, Rave is, and I've read other reviews looking back at these shows of people saying, like, Rave is night and day better as a for, heel. For anyone who still holds on to the idea that Gabe Sapolsky was not a good booker or just put guys out there to do matches, look no further than Jimmy Rave. Jimmy Rave was a good wrestler, but he concoct, he concocted this whole plan to get him over and had this vision, and it worked. And, like, this is just – it's a really good example of, like, Gabe knew what he was doing when it came to booking for his audience back then, um, I think. And I think he deserves – he still deserves credit for being a good booker. He won Booker of the Year or Promoter of the Year a lot in uh, in The Observer, and I think he deserved it. And as we've covered before, like, Rave goes in and does that little work shoot thing where he acts like he's really pissed that and that Ring of Honor's really fired him, which is a story, as we've documented, like, actually fooled The Observer and The Torch. I mean, like – it was a nice little, and then it became more of a genuine surprise when he came back. Like it was a nice little piece of business this year, the way they they kind of resuscitated Jimmy career, Jimmy Rave's career. Yeah, and as we know, just from hindsight, like he became a big star for them for a couple of years, like a, like yeah. a, like a close to main event level star. Yeah, like like the funny thing is we talk about how his act is mostly like you mentioned his act is mostly there. It's funny he still hasn't doesn't have the one piece left, which would be arguably like the thing he's most remembered for, which is the toilet paper thing. Oh yeah, there's a couple there's a couple couple years away from that. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting too, where he's getting this praise, but he really doesn't have that thing or the big more upper mid card feuds that he gets later, which actually he actually rises like a level from here. So, um. After the match, Allison Danger gets in the ring with the mic. She gets on her knees. She begs the embassy to kill BJ Whitmer. She points out that she'll give them anything they want, and then she makes sure to verbalize that I'm on my knees. Gabe wonders if she's offering money, and just to make sure this isn't even a shred, has a shred of subtlety to it, Mark Nolte says, it isn't money she's offering. Well, um, of, course it's, yeah. of course it's Nolte who says that. Yeah, exactly. Um 
the embassy leaves as danger continues to beg. But of course, by them leaving, that leaves her alone, alone in the ring with a recovered BJ Whitmer. He looks like he's about to attack her and get his revenge. When the Carnage crew come in, they attack BJ. They hit the Carnage plex and the crowd, I would remark, goes mild. I would say they're not hugely into seeing this. But then one of the Carnage crew brings out a garbage can and two bats. Uh, DeVito gets on the mic and he says that a couple weeks ago, Mick Foley stood with Moff and Whitmer and talked about Ring of Hardcore. But he says now they're going to welcome BJ into the Carnage Crew's Ring of Hardcore. Uh, they chase Danger out of the ring and then they put the can on Whitmer and they beat the living fuck out of it with these bat shots. It's some pretty heavy bat shots. Yeah. These cans. How is how is that safe at all? Like I'm trying to figure this out. Like yes, I get there's a garbage can, but like they're beating the crap out of a garbage can that's over a guy's head with bats. Like. How does anyone feel comfortable with that being safe enough to do? I don't understand. Yeah, and sometimes you see these at, at this this spot, and like the the shots are like pretty light. These were like heavy, loud, like really deforming the can, and a like lot of them bat shots. A lot of the bat shots too. It wasn't just like a couple; like they just like went at it. Yeah, definitely. If nothing else, you'd think it could like bust Whitmer's eardrum or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean Whitmer is a guy who like put himself out there quite a bit. So sure did. A guy could, that would be willing to take something like this, even though it's probably like you said, not a smart move to take something. Uh, DeVito then tells BJ to tell Dan Moff that there isn't anything more hardcore than this bitch. And just should mention that uh Moff, as Gabe mentioned on commentary, couldn't be at the show. Cause he's, I don't know if this was legit or not, but he claimed that Moff had hurt his shoulder at a uh, glory by honor three. So he does come back shortly, but he's not here on this show. So that's why Whitmer's all on his own in this attack. And that brings us to Low Key, with Julius Smokes defeated Jay Lethal by submission in 14 minutes, 25 seconds, when Lethal tapped out to the Dragon Clutch. Uh, Matt, before I get it to you, uh, uh, we have some notes from Mike Johnson's We Will for a lot of these matches. And he has a longer review I can get to after, but I just thought I'd open this with... Mike Johnson loved this match. Mike Johnson wrote, one thing I will say right now is you should go out of your way to see Loki versus Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe versus American Dragon. Lethal is going to be a great star one day as he's channeling the spirit of the best parts of Ricky Steamboat, Dynamite Kid, and JT Smith. Loki's new heel persona is my favorite Ring of Honor character right now. He's totally believable, and you really want to see someone kick the crap out of him, and he's such a badass that you doubt it can happen. Um, JT Smith. Yeah, I don't know. One of those things is not like the other throwing him in there. (laughs) I mean, nothing against JT Smith, but I don't understand. But yeah, um, Mike Johnson ended up calling this his match of the night. Uh, Matt, this is a match that is remembered by, I think, it's not hugely remembered, but it's remembered more than the standard kind of Ring of Honor undercard match. What do you think, looking back on this all these years later? I really liked it a lot, too. Um, You know, I I, I didn't watch this match and think, like, oh, Jay Lethal is Ricky Steamboat mixed with the Dynamite Kid or anything like that. But, like, I I thought this was, like, the beginning. Like, if you want to mark, like, a start point on Lethal's journey to become his his, uh, 11-year journey to becoming ROH champion... I would start it here. Um, like this was like a, ma- a star-making match in a lot of ways. Um, first of all, I thought Loki was fantastic in this match. Like he just did a great, great job of being a heel, you know, but still being entertaining, you know, as opposed to like the first match where he was a heel and he was just kind of slow. Um, yeah. 
You know, he um, he gives Lethal a decent amount of offense, like a lot of offense, honestly, including like a tope early. And you could tell the crowd is really happy for Lethal, but they don't like buy him as a threat at all at the beginning of the match. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And, Le- you know, some of the that is the booking, like Lethal does something really, really stupid. The character does at the beginning of the match where Julius Smokes like distracts Lethal and Lethal gives him a hug. And it's like, all right. Um, I feel like, you know, that's a bit too dumb for any baby face at all. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, if this was like the Eugene character, like I could see them doing that where he's like, oh, then we give him a hug. But lethal is not supposed to be like that. Right. Like, can you, can you think of a, like a reasonable explanation for why Jay lethal would hug Julius smokes in the middle of a match against Loki? No, like (laughs) if you're not Bailey or like you said, Eugene, like, It's it's not making sense unless yep. you have like a, a irrational love of hugs to the point where it's all encompassing. <laughs> like I gotta do whatever I can. Yes, which there are wrestlers who have had that gimmick, but Jay Lethal was never one of them, as far as I know. Yes, uh, surprisingly, there's at least two. Now that we think of it, there's at least two wrestlers that have had that gimmick. Yes. Uh. Um, but so, like, when Nolte really goes in on how stupid Gabe, I mean, how stupid Lethal is, I really can't blame him there. Um, although Gabe does try to ignore him. Um, um, so at this point that's when you start seeing Smokes going at it with a couple of women at ringside and we find out pretty quickly that's Jay Lethal's mom and I assume the other woman is his aunt or his sister or something like that Um, so you know Jay Lethal's mom is a pretty famous audience member in terms of being loud and boisterous and we definitely heard her in the background on recent shows and now they have foregrounded her and gotten her involved in a storyline so um you know, Loki does like an arrogant cover with his knee. Like he's he's chopping him so hard that the crowd goes insane. Um, and Jay keeps fighting back. Um, you know, Lethal. Whenever he gets on a hold, he's taunting Jay's family. Um, Smokes is getting in his mom's face. You know, at the same time. You know, and Lethal keeps getting hope spots. You know, even out outsmarts outsmarts Loki with some fake outs. But Loki will keep cutting him off. You know, like like at one point, uh, Lethal tried a sunset flip, but. Uh, but he like twisted his legs around Lethal's head. I thought that was pretty cool. Like did almost like like some like a I don't know if it's like a neck twist or like a head clamp with his legs. Um, you know he's just grinding down Lethal on holds. That way Lethal can try to rally the crowd. And you know he keeps getting big pops with his chops and stuff. Um, he does when Loki does like the, that you know Warriors way double stomp to Lethal's ribs. And I thought this was a particularly brutal one. Um, it just looked really rough. Um, uh, this is, by the way, I'm pretty. Is this the first time that Loki has worn the uh, like the regular pants with the leg rolled up, where AKA gangsta key? He didn't do that on uh, any of the other shows, right? My memory's awful, but I had that same thought, so I'm thinking yes. And also, even like the bandana that goes over one eye when he comes out in the entrance, like yeah, it definitely felt like this was the debut of, I guess what we call yeah the gangsta key look. Yeah, I th- yeah I would say so. Um, at one point, uh, Smokes like holds Jay in front of Lethal's mom, and Key is like, "Is this your baby boy?" And chops him so hard multiple times, and he gets in the mom's face each time. Um, but uh, the mom, and I guess, and the other woman, they have no problem pushing him back. You know, she does a really good job, I think, actually. Um, so Loki actually spits in Jay Lethal's mom's face, which is pretty intense so lethal fights back and uh he holds loki so so lethal's mom can slap him um and i love the look on loki's face after the slap 
it's just like this is probably the most heelish and like stoogiest Loki has ever been in his entire career. Would you would you say that like during all these segments with uh, Jay Lethal's mom? There's this is a great match for that, especially like there's also one moment that's like a great moment, and there's a moment like earlier in that match I think where Lethal hits some move or gets the best of Key somehow, and Key is doing that like where he, that big kind of really over the top heel thing, but in a great way where he's like looking around almost like he can't believe like he's like rest in peace Fred Willard what happened like he's just <laughs> looking like 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 he like it, it's like a for people that say that like low key is just one note, like if you watch this low key, he is so clearly doing so many different little things different that he would not do as like a face. Yes. Oh man. Like he was, he, he was just, he was just on fire in this match in every way. Um, and now, now the crowd is like really into Jay. Like at the beginning, they were they liked him, but they didn't believe in him. Now they are really into him. And Loki's, you know, like he keeps blocking the dragon suplex. Lethal moves out of the way of a springboard kick and hits a big suplex. Um, Smokes distracts again, and Lethal tries to get Key to run into Smokes, but Key stops short and then hits a a capo kick on Lethal. Um, he puts Lethal's mouth over the bottom rope and does like a full-on like American History X curb stomp, which yeah. is like, ugh, I don't know if that's, that plays well today, <laughs> but at the time it was just like a really, really badass, like intense thing to do in a wrestling match. I don't know if I, I, I don't remember seeing that in other wrestling matches, that particular think, stomp. Do you think you would be less uncomfortable, like from you saying that, I think you're going to agree with me, but like. Was it the very first thing that came to your mind when you saw that, like, American History X? Yeah. Like, it's weird. Like, I don't think that when I see Super Drag, like, the, 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 the foot-to-the-back curb stop, you never think that. But, like, literally, when you said that, like, when I was watching it, that was the that I did have that kind of uncomfortable, like, this is reminding me of a, one of the more brutal scenes I've ever seen in a movie, like... Yeah, I mean, I think for people our age, that's what people think of when they, when they see a stomp like that. Um, but Lethal sells that really big, and then Loki gets on the dragon clutch. You know, please don't tap chance, and Lethal struggles, but he taps out. Uh, Loki won't release the hold until the ref pulls him off. I don't know, I thought this was really good. I thought, you know, good storyline, good drama, you know, gets the ball rolling on a year-long feud. Um, just fantastic. I just, I just can't speak well enough about Loki's performance here. I thought he did an amazing job. I thought this really got the ball rolling for Lethal. You know, his push just grows from here. I thought the crowd was really into it. I thought the mom did a good job. If it wasn't for that hug, I would say this match would be close to perfect in terms of what it was trying to do. You know, not like a five-star like wrestling classic. Just like a really good, well-booked, baby-face-heel storyline match. And big thumbs up for me. I would also agree with Mike Johnson. Go out of your way to see this. Yeah, I I really really like this match too. I, I feel like watching it, it almost could be a little bit divisive to people that didn't come up in the era because I feel like so many matches nowadays, and not to sound like a grumpy guy, because I do like a lot of modern wrestling, but so many matches these days are about no matter what the characters are, no matter what the spot on the card, just like making the most action packed back and forth moves, moves, moves match possible possible like that's how you have a great match and this match isn't about like the most near falls or the most even thing and just a thrill ride that goes as quick as you can it's about getting over these two characters like everything they do is informed by who the characters are it's the underdog who's just starting to rise up jay lethal against the ass kicking newly healed just piece of shit low key and 
it's funny, like uh, one of the earlier low key as heel matches, I was kind of underwhelmed. And I think like you mentioned, like the Briscoe match, we were kind of the singles match he's had a little, the Mark Briscoe one, I believe that we were like a little underwhelmed, but I remember, I think it was in that match. It might've been a different match. You pointed out, like I was being a little hard on key, I think. And we were like, yeah, but like he's trying you. I was like, is key maybe just not trying as hard. And you were saying something like, no, I think he's like trying to work different as a heel. And I don't know if you saying that just made me focus more on that or, or if it's more that this match is just really a really good example of that. But like, I noticed so many things key did in this match like I mentioned earlier that he would not do as a face, like so many little things and, and big things like he's, he's, you know, taunting the crowd. He's turning lethal when he has him in the submission. So he's facing his, his mom, his mom and like taunting her. He's doing stuff like that. He's cheating a little bit, but also it's just, it feels like he has made a conscious effort. Like he still does the big top rope foot stomp and stuff, but he's doing way less of the flashy stuff. He's mostly, he's paring it down more to the hard kicks and a few, few moves, but like it's a slower deliberate. And for some people, why, why I said before it might be devices is some people go like, this isn't like a four and a half star back and forth tons of near falls thrill ride that maybe that, you know, these guys were probably capable of, but they're, it's because they're going for something completely different. They're trying to tell a story. They're trying to get over these two characters and it's really entertaining. And at its goal, it, it completely aces it. Like I especially love that that big lethal comeback gets kicked off by, you know, lethal's mom taking a swing at, at key and that kind of psychs him up. Um, that curb stomp was ab- absolutely brutal. I also like that we were still in an era of wrestling where the curb stomp was still not a regular move. So instead of saying curb stomp, Gabe just says he got curbed. Like it makes me feel like there was maybe an alternate reality. Like there's an alternate dimension where instead of saying curb stomp, we just always say that guy got curbed. But it, <laughs> <thought> it was- <laughs> you <laughs> got curbed. No. Yeah. Instead now cur- you got curbed. It's just like, you did a Larry David esque bad thing in a social situation and yeah. had an uncomfortable moment. But um, Mark Nolte again, you mentioned the thing that maybe we can let him off the hook for, where he gets he goes, "Wow, Lethal's being stupid for that stuff." But there is one moment I think I can't let him off the hook for, where Lethal does a big kick out where Gabe and Nolte before were saying like, "Oh, it's over." Like he need he just needs to finish him. He's Lethal's dead, and then. Lethal kicks out and, you know, Gabe's trying to sell it the right way, which is like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And Nolte's just like, well, that was a lax cover. It's like, what's the point in saying that, Mark? Like, that benefits nobody. It is clear what 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 the goal of that moment is supposed to be. It's supposed to be, oh, my God, I can't believe Lethal's still in this. Not, well, he should have looked away. Like, it's... (laughs) Nolte Nolte can't help himself. Yeah, exactly. Um... And I guess one other problem is there was a lot of smoked interference in this match. And I, I, we've talked about before, I don't have a problem with interference in these matches, but there's a lot of interference on the show. Man. It's like packed until the main event with interference. And yeah, it, some, some of it works, some of it doesn't, I guess. Yeah, it, it's just, it's a little too much in a row for me. I, I felt, especially because a lot of it is all from one guy. You know, it's it's smokes and match after match after match. You know, yes. three straight matches. Smokes has a really busy first half of the show, huh? Yeah. Well, not. Th- I was gonna say three straight matches. Actually, it's three of four matches because the four way is not him. But, right. Um, and then I guess 
yeah, and Lethal's mom, great performance, obviously. It almost felt like an unintentional angle where we had seen her, well, not seen her, but heard her on a few shows lately screaming. And so for her actually to be worked into an angle, it almost felt like the culmination of something. Like, finally, the great Smoke's mom payoff. And, okay, an important question for you, Matt. I had this planned. Hate to put you on the spot, but I believe there should be a Parents of Wrestlers Hall of Fame with the caveat that they can't be wrestlers themselves, too. I think you got to put Mama Lethal's got to be a first ballot Parents of Wrestlers Hall of Famer. I think you got to have Papa Briscoe. I think you got to have Mrs. Dad and maybe John Cena's dad. Is there anyone I'm leaving out, Matt? Could you think you're way better for wrestling memories to me? If we were doing a Parents of Wrestlers who have gotten involved Hall of Fame, was Tori Wilson's dad her actual dad? I don't think so. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I don't remember, but like, gonna have to look that up actually right now. Yeah, because I, I think it might have been actually. <laughs> if if it was, then does he count? Because it definitely seems like uh, I wonder how often this was in older generations. Because it definitely seems like our last modern generation mm-hmm. has kind of had an embarrassment of riches in terms of kind of entertaining almost iconic moments where real parents have gotten involved in their kids' matches or angles. Yeah, it was. It was her dad, Al Wilson. Wow. Okay, so yeah, definitely should be in the hall. Yeah. Um, yeah, when, when he uh, sadly passed away last year, I'm reading this article from Pro Wrestling Sheet. WWE fans will remember the 2002-2003 storyline in which Al Wilson married his daughter's rival, Don Marie. <laughs> um, the feud famously culminated in a stepmother versus stepdaughter match at the 2003 Royal Rumble. I never expected to be talking about this on Through the Years. Um, See, Matt, this is why I say we've made progress in women, how women <laughs> treated in wrestling. Oh, boy. Um, oh, boy. But, no, definitely. Uh, um, Judy Bagwell? Oh, how could – see, this is why I asked you. How could we have missed – well, I missed. You got it. Judy Bagwell has to be first ballot Hall of Family. Has to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm she's sure – listeners will have other answers, but, I mean, I think that's a pretty good – that's a pretty good, pretty good first class. She is – she was a tag team champion. <laughs> oh, God. Um so I guess I'll just go back to Mike Johnson did a longer full review of this match. He was really in love with this. We should just – I'll go over it a bit because it's rare to see Mike Johnson actually get this passionate about a match. He wrote, in the match of the night, Loki defeated Jay Lethal in 1425. Uh, we might have to debate that later. But uh, <laughs> he wrote, Loki's new persona is awesome. In many ways, there there is a huge parallel between Key and Sapolsky and Sabu and Paul Heyman. Like Sabu, Key was a major asset to the indie scene, but Ring of Honor cemented him and gave him that one home promotion that made him the centerpiece of the company with his Zen master martial arts persona. Like Sabu Heyman, Key and Sapolsky have butted heads, and I'm sure will again down the line, which led to Key leaving the company. When he returned, it really was the deciding moment in whether the company would surpass some of the negative shadows that had been cast upon it by events earlier this year. His return in many ways cemented that the company would be okay in the eyes of the fans. Better yet, his heel turn completely freshened him up in many different ways. Now, when he beats the living hell out of someone, it's completely admissible because he's supposed to be doing that as a thug heel. It's often said that the best persona for someone in the ring is the personality turned up 10 notches, and that's what we have here with low-key, and it works to an awesome extent. Jay Lethal, who basically was a walk-on, 
Winning a contest held by Jersey All-Pro Wrestling and training for free several years back is a prodigy and, as I said earlier, seems to mesh together the best parts of some tremendous workers. His loud and boisterous family adds another dash of realism and intensity to his matches because they seem to, or sure as hell are working everyone into believing, that it's a life-and-death situation for Lethal. In some cases, that would turn him heel, see Ricky Steamboat in 1989, but it works here because it's never shoved down the fans' throats. So I actually thought that song I never thought, but I thought the uh, the M- Mike put ringing up the uh, the comparison of Loki basically being the Sabu to Gabe's Paul Heyman. I actually thought the way he explained it, that actually does make kind of a lot of sense. At the time, it made more sense than it makes now because you know, like Sabu and Heyman were sort of together till the end there. Yeah. Um, you know, and they were kind of joined at the hip a little bit, and that obviously is not the case for Loki. Um, although Loki, this many, so many years later, I think people still most remember him for his Ring of Honor run, don't they? Yeah, and uh, definitely. Although, well, no, actually, yeah, I, 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 I took a second to think, but no, I think you're right. And uh, it, I, the other thing I thought was interesting about that was on these recent shows, I've been saying a lot about how I think you know all these big names being brought in or staying in, in the case of Steamboat, was what really helped convince fans that it was safe, quote-unquote, to go back to Ring of Honor after the Feinstein thing. You know, you had Mick Foley, you had the Midnight Express on this show, you know, Cornette coming back as part of that, All Bobby Heenan eventually coming in after he had canceled his date earlier in the year, like all these guys lending their credibility and saying, you know, hey, I'm endorsing this company in a way. But I, I, I forgot, and I think actually Johnson's right on this too, and I don't always agree with Mike Johnson, but him mentioning that I think actually Loki's return at you know uh, the Honor Reborn completion, I actually do think that was kind of a one of the early kind of signals that maybe we've turned a corner for Ring of Honor. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, so I, I thought that was some interesting notes from Mike Johnson on that one. Actually, some of the best writing I've in all these research. You know, actually thought he had some things to say that I uh, didn't think about myself. Um, so just going back through my notes now. Um, after the match, Key, like you said, won't release the Dragon Clutch until the ref tears his arm away. Key then grabs a mic and smokes. Smokes holds uh, Jay's arms back. Key points out that Lethal is Samoa Joe's protege, but just like everyone else, Jay is just another victim. I wrote in my notes, Key is Taz. Uh, Key says respect is either earned or taught, and Jay didn't earn his respect tonight. Uh, The crowd chants for Joe, but he doesn't come out. Smoke shoves a weak Jay back down to the mat, and uh, Key flips off the crowd. He teases that he's going to leave without attacking Jay, but then he walks back into the ring and he soccer kicks Jay right in the head. They'll try and use this later to sell that he has a concussion, which feels like one of the big uh, results from Key legit knocking out Dan Moff in that match is that for the rest of his career, we've had 800 Key has actually concussed this guy's storylines afterwards. I think this is already the second one we're having in Ring of Honor after uh, the Briscoe one. Sorry, sorry, I was muted. Um, I no, didn't really. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, all I can say is that Loki loves kicking Jays in the head. <laughs> that's a, that's a good catch. Uh, yeah. Um, next up was Nigel McGinnis defeated Homicide again. Julius Smoke's doing a getting, you know, earning his money on this night, doing a lot of work. Uh, he won, Nigel won in twenty minutes three seconds when he did a. 
kind of he just flipped Homicide into a pinning combination out of this weird arm lock thing that was supposed to be one of his major finishers at this point, but still didn't have a name, at least from the commentators. So I don't know what to call it. But anyway, I thought this was another good match. I, if I had to really quantify how I feel about this one, I would say it's like three and a half to maybe bordering on three and three quarter stars. Like I actually really enjoyed this match quite a bit. I think it's a good match to show people like not just how versatile homicide is, but how unselfish he can be because I would say the first third of this match is, you know, it's in Nigel's world. It's on the mat and homicide lets Nigel like pretty much mostly dominate him for the whole first third. And the match is back and forth the rest of the way too, before homicide puts him over, like homicide gives quite a bit to Nigel and they try and frame this as a big match for Nigel. And, Key in the match after that first opening round of mat work is the match moves to the outside. Uh, Homicide goes to throw a lariat. Nigel moves out of the way. Homicide lariats the uh, the ring post. And from there, the rest of the match, Nigel's working over that arm. And I think Homicide does just a great job of selling his arm in this match. He, uh, he, throws, he still throws things with his right arm, but he always sells after he does. And then sometimes he switches up to his left arm. And I don't know if this is purposeful or if he was acting, but you know, some of the stuff he does with his left arm doesn't look as good, but you know, whether, again, like whether that's on purpose acting or just the natural thing that works, you know, for that, um, homicide does so many good little touches with this. He does, uh, like, um, the big spot, this isn't a little touch, but he does his lariat near the end of the match in a key spot, which is one of his finishers. And he sells that it's hurt his arm and he holds it and like, take some time before he makes the pin. And it's one of those great examples of how we've mentioned this before, how an injury can protect a finisher where you can hit a move and then sell your arm and then make the cover and the guy can kick out and it doesn't destroy your finisher, but still gives that guy some credibility. Um, homicide, even when he took off his arm pad, his elbow pad to do the lariat, he sells that even like just pulling off the tight arm pad is hurting his arm. Like, and he, you know, homicide, just a lot of little touches from him. I really like this in this match. Like there's a moment where he has, uh, uh, Nigel in a submission or something. And he's, go he wants to pull his hair cause he's homicide and he cheats, but cause ha Nigel has like the spiked up hair. He does these very tentative taps at first to the top of his ha hair, like clearly checking, like, is this going to cut me if I grab his spiked up hair? <laughs> and then he finally confidently grabs it. And I just thought those are like the cute, like little in the moment things that great wrestlers do where like, you know, he's like, I, I, this guy's different. So I'm going to treat him a little different. And I just, I thought homicide did, this was a really good night for him in terms of that kind of stuff. And I thought Nigel, you know, after that first third of the match, this, this match goes from the mat to much more just action back and forth. But I thought Nigel did a good, good thing where a lot of times when a match goes to just like more moves, you know, on your feet kind of stuff, they forget about the limb work. But I thought Nigel did a good job of doing a lot of, you know, his good usual moves, but he never took too long before he hit the arm or something again, whether it was the divorce court or just like a move where he took a guy in kind of a wrist lock and just dropped down and drove his arm down or did a back suplex with a hammer lock. So homicide would land on his own arm. Like Nigel was good about sticking enough to the arm without doing it every second of the match. And yeah, I just thought, and, and finally, before I give it to you, um, Nigel, I, I love the way he sells the win. When Nigel wins this match, he um he like immediately jumps up and runs out of the ring and starts like really 
being pumped up right with the crowd behind him. And I thought, you know, that elevated how big this win felt because it, he could have easily just sold it like, Hey, I won. That was, that, that's cool. Raise my arm ref. But he really did sell this. Like it was the biggest win of his career so far. And not that I think people really remember this match, but watching it in this moment, it actually did feel like bigger than I thought it would. Um, Matt, what did you think? Well, I actually can say that I did remember this match. This match stuck with me from when I first watched it as like a big moment for Nigel. And I completely agree with you. I would give my, put my rating right at the same same place, basically. Um, I, I remember just as I watched, like constantly noting, like, wow, Nigel is really dominating. Wow, Nigel is really dominating. He dominates a lot of the match, um, especially the early part. But he's, he, he, he does a lot. He's pretty much – he definitely has the most offense in the match. And Homicide is extremely giving to him. And um, they do a lot of mat work that I'd say is like more mat work even than a lot of like the recent like Danielson or um, pure title matches at the beginning. Like they're really on the mat. And, you know, one thing that I I like about this show is that it's a real coming out party for a lot of guys. Um, I thought that this was Rave's best performance so far. I thought Lethal really came on strong. and I thought Nigel really came on strong. Like just a lot of guys just really stepping up on the first half of this show. That's a really good point. Um, yeah. I never thought about that, but yeah, especially back to back, you know, here. Yeah. Like, like it just show it just it give give a lot of confidence in the future of ROH that these guys are like stepping up. And um yeah, I mean, you know, I, I you know, I mean, you know, Smokes was involved as always, like you said, you know, with Smokes holding the leg and all the different stuff. But I didn't mind it that much cuz I thought the match was telling a really good story. I thought Homicide was, you know, he sold really well. I thought Nigel you know, there maybe he recovered a little too quickly from that pile driver, um, I mean, on on you know, uh, and mm. on the floor and stuff like that. But like, um, I I, uh, I just I just thought like it was a really good back and forth drama. The crowd got was really into the mat work early. You know, the fact that that you know, I like my favorite sequence was um, so uh, when. Uh, Homicide hit the top rope ace crusher, then Homicide hit the lariat with the bad arm, and Nigel kicked out, then he went for the other, but Nigel kicked the arm, he escaped the cop killer, does the artful dodger, hits the divorce court. I just thought that was so cool. Um, just like, and the, and just, cause you know, when Nigel would do that artful dodger thing in previous matches, it was sort of like, just like, almost like a transition spot, um, you know, kind of just to pop the crowd early. And he uses it here in like a big dramatic sequence. And you really didn't see that from Nigel, you know, even as he became a more prominent star. And I thought it worked really well here. Like, I really liked the way he worked that into, like, a, a third gear kind of sequence. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. And I liked the finish a lot. Um, you know, I thought it was the right way to have him win. You know, I didn't, you know, I don't think Homicide tapping out to the arm submission would have worked. But that roll up and then the cra- and then Nigel just, like, running out immediately. I thought that was just the perfect way for him to win. And it kind of was a good contrast because Lethal, you know, tried his best, but he couldn't overcome Loki. Nigel, you know, Homicide didn't give him as intensive a beating. And Nigel actually was pretty much in charge for the whole match. It wasn't like a slip on the banana feel finish. It was actually like Nigel was the better man on this night, even overcoming interference and a veteran and, you know, some brutal moves. Um, Yeah, I mean... I've always been a huge Nigel McGuinness fan since I first saw him um, live, which is probably about seven or eight months after this. Um, but he was he was really fantastic here, and Homicide 
this is I think this is actually one of Homicide's better performances of 2004. Um, you know, he didn't have as many real top tier matches in 04 as he did in 03. Um, but I thought he did a great job here. Um, and I thought these two really meshed better than you'd think together. And uh, yeah, big thumbs up for this match. And, and going back using your comparison about how um, you know we're seeing multiple matches on the show where guys like Lethal and Nigel have like breakout performances. It's also interesting con- comparing it where I believe like you see Low Key and um, Homicide. You know, Homicide was Low Key's trainer. Back to back matches where the, in these matches putting over these younger guys, both Homicide and Key I think are doing some really nice, more subtle like nuanced detailed little the you know the music between the notes as they would say stuff you know that maybe they don't always get credit for which it's just really cool to see and especially like when you think about back to back um just look at my notes a couple other things i liked in this match um i thought nigel had an one that my the best stfs i've ever seen actually where he hooks his both his legs around homicides so basically almost no part of nigel is touching homicide like he's basically riding his body and it it looked really good like tight where often um stfs can look kind of loose it looked just looked really good actually it looked better than homicides and homicide has a good stf um I liked when Homicide teased the tope, and a lot of times he just flips the fans off. It's like, fuck you, and, you know, I'm not going to give it to you. But this time, he did that, but then he went to the um, the ring apron and just did, like, a double axe handle off the apron, which looked kind of dopey, but I also thought it was kind of, like, an adorable kind of old-school heel thing to do, to, like, go, I'm still going to do something off the apron. It's going to be a double axe handle. Like, fuck you. I, I, I like that. And, um... I also there was a there's a Nigel German suplex where it looks like Homicide went up kind of heavy like Nigel's not where like a third of the way into the German I'm like oh fuck this is gonna be a botch like he's not gonna get him up and you can just see Nigel like muscle him over his head and just land it like it looked real whether yeah. that was the plan or not it was just a really cool German and also Nigel very rarely does Germans in the first place so he did a good job with that one yeah it just. So, yeah, good match. Again, like the last match, it's not like, oh, my God, match of the year. But they're both exactly what these matches need to be and just really fun and satisfying. Well worked and well booked. I want to make that clear. Well booked because I, I just I really saw a lot of people shitting on Gabe after the whole Evolve thing went down. And it's just like, I you know, I haven't seen so much Evolve. I went to a few shows. But like during this era of ROH, the booking was good. <laughs> like I, I will stand by this. Yeah, and I think something, if you've listened to our last few shows, like this was a, oh, oh, the start of like what considered like a golden era of Ring of Honor. But even like the booking, like it got, I think uh, it got noticeably took a step up once Gabe had to reckon with like AJ and Daniels leaving. Like from that moment on where he kind of does like the soft reset, I think it gets noticeably he like rises a level in his booking. I agree. Um after the match, it's intermission time, and all of Generation Next are backstage with Gary Michael Capetta. Gary says it's feared that Jay Lethal might have a concussion. Gary then goes on to say he's going to do he's here to do an interview with Gen Next, but Alex Shelley says he'll take it from here, and he gives a little joking fist tap on the chin of Gary, and Gary just adorably sells this by like stumbling hard off camera, like like he sells it way more than than you would like i think kind of purposely it, it's, it's just it was kind of cute i thought uh, I'm, I'm a gary michael capetta stan i'll admit it and uh 
Shelly says, in elimination matches, there's usually a sole survivor, but tonight there's going to be four survivors. He says they've already taken out Jimmy Jacobs, Ace Steel, and CM Punk, who they're facing tonight, and taken their spots. And then I wrote in my notes at this point, seeing that Generation Next is wrestling all of those guys tonight, I am starting to wonder what the what take their spots even means. Uh, Shelley, they took the spots of who the people who would have been their opponents. <laughs> exactly, he yeah. didn't take their like he's on the exact same spot on the card as these guys. He just said he took their spots because he's facing them. Yes, you know they're second from the top, just like everybody else. But anyway, um. Shelley says they're going to take John Walter's spot too and prove that his title is a hoax. Shelley says you can bring whoever you want, God, Martin Luther King, or Ricky Steamboat. It doesn't matter. Generation Next ascends to the next level tonight. We then – so, Matt, I don't know if you noticed this, but I thought this was a pretty funny moment. We um, Gary then throws to Sugar Sean Price, you know, and he acts like, you know, Sugar Sean Price is with the, their opponents, you know, and, it, and we get a screen wipe. And he's acting like we're getting another live interview somewhere else in the building. But here's the funny thing. We get, like, the big screen wipe where the Ring of Honor logo takes over the screen and then it fades back out. And we see Sugar Sean Price is standing with uh, his the Gen Next opponents, except – they're acting like it's some other place live. And, you know, Sean Stevens like, thanks, Gary. But it's clearly the exact same spot Gary was just in with Generation X because there is the exact same painting on the wall that was behind Generation X is behind the other team in the exact same spot with the exact same yellow note hanging directly below it. Like, it was so clearly they did one promo, moved the guys out of the way, and then shot the other. And the fact that they tried, like, they couldn't even be bothered to move, like, 10 feet to a, a direction to sell it di- to, to try and sell it. This was a different place at the same time. I, I got a chuckle out of that, but anyway, um, let me see. Uh, he, yeah. Sean is with, uh, CM punk, Jimmy Jacobs, a steel, Sh- John Walters and Ricky steamboat, uh, punk says that since generation next came in, they've been all about taking spots. And he says, well, this match is tailor made for them because it's four on four elimination. And punk says, come take our spots. Uh, steamboat says his style is the athletic technical style of wrestling. Hardcore is going down and the four men he's assembled and trained tonight are going to put generation next down. Uh, Matt, before we get to the next match, I actually, I kind of had, a. Um, one thing I noticed, and it comes in the promo, I guess, that we'll get to in a second, that he Steamboat gives before. And I have a few comments about these promos also when you're done. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just going to say, and maybe this is going to go right into your um, – actually, I'll, I'll do the other Steam, Steamboat promo first because our thoughts can apply to both of them. Before the next match, Steamboat gets on the mic because he's the second for the punk team, and he says – he steps in the ring. Steamboat is not happy that Mick Foley wants to call Ring of Honor Ring of Hardcore – Ricky says ROH is not looking for stuntmen and he can take that garbage style of wrestling and take it out of here. And then Ricky says it's an honor for all these wrestlers to stay step in the ring. So this was the start of, of them trying to push a Ricky Steamboat um, Mick Foley feud where being kind of wrestled via the Ring of Honor wrestlers, this whole hardcore versus technical wrestling thing. And I, I'm, I have to bet your, your thoughts are going to agree with these where – it felt kind of ham-handed and not believable that Steamboat really felt that passion. It also felt kind of weird where he's kind of tr- cutting these promos while also in the middle of the Generation Next feud with him, where it felt like he was angrier that Mick Foley was like, hardcore wrestling is cool, than the fact these guys that had like attacked him multiple times. Um, 
I'll just go to the Observer thing and then throw it to you. Um, the Observers on this thing said, they are setting up a Steamboat versus Foley feud. As Steamboat talked about the hardcore wrestling that Foley talked about at the last show, saying Ring of Honor was built on great wrestling and not on stuntman bumps and garbage wrestling. The booking goal is to reestablish hardcore wrestling as something serious that can draw after it was destroyed by overuse everywhere and by WWE and TNA turning it, turning it into numbing comedy. Um, Matt, I just maybe this will change as we watch more shows. This wasn't working for me. Well, for me, it was more like you know, it's it's not that I have a problem with the concept of it. It's like he just he just throws us in there when he's cutting a promo on Generation Next, who this has nothing to do with. Generation Next are not hardcore wrestlers, right? They yeah. are they are you know most of them are you know really solid pure wrestlers, good foundational solid wrestling, as he said. So it just seems like really like pigeonholed in there, like. It just seems like, I mean, Steamboat was never the best promo in the world, but I don't think he was going into business for himself here, right? You no. know, Gabe always like, you know, cut this promo, and it's like, it makes no sense. Like, wait until it comes up. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it just, it takes focus off of what you're actually doing. And I think we might have referenced this on an old show, but I guess one of the main ideas was because there was some a bit of buzz at this time about the Mick Foley uh, Rick Flair rivalry where Rick Flair wrote some not nice comments about Mick Foley in his book and then Mick Foley did that shoot interview with Ring of Honor where he responded to it line by line like the the idea and I think we've talked about um about this in the past but they've said that it was basically like this was Ring of Honor's way of doing the Foley versus Flair feud with Steamboat basically being a surrogate for for uh, Flair like apparently that um you know that stuntman line is directed like right out of the book like you're supposed to recognize that and go ooh you know he's saying what flair did from his autobiography and again it's just uh, uh, it's kind of inventive that they're like well let's see if we can do the mcfoley rick flair feud without actually having access to rick flair but it, it's just not clicking for me so far yeah i mean i i mean it may or may not end up clicking but I really feel like it wouldn't be clicking right now because the McFoley's not there, you know. Yeah. And Foley did not cut a promo on Ricky Steamboat, you know. So it doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, when they're together, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. I, I don't really remember honestly. Maybe that tells you that it didn't work. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't. It makes no sense that he's throwing it in here. I, I when he should be talking about Generation Next. He barely. He barely even cuts a promo on Generation Next. And especially because. You know, Ricky Steamboat and Foley are supposed to be both supposed to be faces at this point. And Ricky Steamboat, you know, like Mick Foley, when he did his speech on that recent show, he wasn't like regular wrestling sucks or whatever. He was just like, there's some good hardcore wrestling. And I think Ring of Honor is a place for that. And it's cool. And Steamboat here comes off just like, you know, like a Jim Cornette podcast listener where he's just like, why the fuck do you like that? You you shouldn't like the thing you like. Like, this yeah. is what this place is about. And it's just... It's. It doesn't. I guess when I feel like it doesn't feel natural for Steamboat, like it doesn't seem like Steamboat would should be that cranky about it right now, based on the little Foley did so far. But yeah, Punk, Punk actually like did that too on commentary on the last show, where he like stood up to Foley's claim that there was hardcore wrestling in ROH, and it's like, uh, there is. <laughs> I've seen it. One of the most hardcore yeah. matches the company ever had, like within he, months of, of this. Yeah, and he was in some other ones too. Yeah, yeah. I, um, but um, the other thing I wanted to mention about the promos is when Shelley says that uh, Punk, you know, could bring God, Martin Luther King, or Steamboat in his corner. I'm like, man, I, so that's where Vince McMahon got the God idea from. <laughs> he was watching this promo. 
El like, Shelley secret horrible booker. But um, at least he didn't. At least he didn't try to have Martin Luther King in the corner. Yeah. Um, don't give them ideas. But next yeah. we have elimination. Not, we're not. By the way, you're not shuddering at the concept of Martin Luther King. You're, you're no. shuddering at the concept of Vince McMahon exploiting his memory, as if he yeah. never does that every January. <laughs> he does that every February. Yeah, I know. And, uh, on other times, you know. Yeah. Lots of. Ex- but anyway. Yes. Uh, we, we get the semi-main event. It's an elimination eight-man tag team match. It's Generation Next, Alex Shelley, Austin Aries, Jack Evans, and Roderick Strong defeated Jimmy Jacobs, John Walters, and the Second City Saints of Ace Steel and CM Punk. Colt Cabana, I'll note, was, um, he was in his tour of Europe, I believe, at this point, so that's why he's not here. And Ricky Steamboat was in their corner. The match went 34 minutes, 13 seconds. I'll go over the eliminations. Alex Shelley eliminated Jimmy Jacobs via pinfall in 1354 after... After he hit the shell shock, which was after Jimmy Jacobs took an unseen chair shot. Uh, Ace Steel eliminated Jack Evans via pinfall in 2017 after he hit the spinal shock. Austin Aries eliminated Ace Steel via pinfall in 2052 with a crucifix bomb. John Walter, no, CM Punk next was disqualified at 2446 for using a chair and being caught by the ref. John Walters eliminated Roderick Strong via pinfall at 2827 after he hit three lung blowers. And then Austin Aries eliminated John Walters via pinfall in 34-13 after he hit the 450. So that would leave you, if you were keeping track, Alex Shelley and Austin Aries as the only two survivors. Um, Matt, what did you think about this? This is another big Generation Next eight-man tag. Obviously, different people, different rules, but it's another big one of those. What did you think watching this one? How did it compare maybe to the... uh, the original Gen Next eight man. Uh, I thought this was an experimental type of match for ROH, and I thought that it did not work, in my opinion. I um, I just didn't like it. <laughs> like I, th- I thought the crowd didn't seem to really like it either. I just thought the booking, like I, you know, I get where they went with it, and I think you know that was okay. But how they got there was not. So I'll just go through it as best I can and try to explain. Uh, what happened and some of the things that I didn't like about it. Um, so we're starting in with Walters and he's stretching Jack Evans, who, uh, you know, uh, Jacobs hasn't been around for a while and he's going one-on-one with Jack. And Nolte, who had been shitting on Jimmy Jacobs a lot, decided just now that Jacobs is the most improved wrestler and he's quit the clowning. And it's like, um, I'm p- pretty sure the last match that he was in, you disliked. I don't. I don't know. It just felt felt like Jacobs hasn't been around enough to really show you that, Mark. Um, but maybe he had seen the next show first. I don't know. Um, but he. Um, but yeah. So Nolte says Jacobs is the most improved wrestler of the year. I feel like that isn't true based on some of the other guys we've seen. But he's pretty good. Um, you know, I like Jimmy we just Jacobs. Saw two of the most improved wrestlers, like. In the last two matches, so. yeah, both from a K from a kayfabe and real life standpoint, um, Punk is has been doing a, a slingshot suplex more often. And he did one on Roderick, um, and Gabe uh, says in classic wrestler illusion territory, he goes, "It looks like a mentally challenged person person cut Ace Steel's hair because Ace has short hair now." And that is actually a reference because Ace Steel was on Raw the previous week and Eugene cut his hair. I have not seen this angle. I don't really remember what it was. I wasn't really watching WWE much in the fall of 2004, so I probably never saw it in the first place, honestly. 
but it doesn't sound very good. I don't know. Um, did you see no. it? Do you, do you, did you go back and watch this angle? No. In fact, even Meltzer, he referenced it somewhat in his notes where he said, no word how the crowd reacted to Ace Steel, who bumped for a thrust kick by Eric Bischoff and had his hair cut by Eugene on Raw. So, and also, I, apparently this week doing my research, John Walters was one of the security guards who removed Randy Orton in an angle on Raw. So two different wrestlers in this match were actually on Raw. Wow, impressive. Um, now, this was before A Steel played Donald Trump on Raw, right? In the Rosie yeah, O'Donnell I, I angle? So. Um, man, what a time. <laughs> Am I referring to then or now? Probably makes more sense to be referring to now when I say that. Um, I, I wish we were back then. In, well, in some ways. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. Uh, it's it's yeah. It's, there's uh, no escape, Matt. There's no escape. Yeah, there were things that were really horrible then, as we talked about at the beginning, and things that are better now, and then yeah. things that we thought were better now, and then things that are just clearly worse. Um, so oh boy, it's all it's our whole lives have been a nightmare. Um, <laughs> this is the great escape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Real escapism. Let's uh, flip to this. Uh, just a random timestamp. Quote, our whole lives have been a nightmare. Okay, I'm going to listen to another podcast now. <laughs> We're um, trying our best, folks. We're doing as good as we can under the circumstances. Which I guess We're, is just not very good. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think, you know what, Matt? I bet you will get a lot of nice comments about this, by which I mean at least two. Two is a um, lot for us. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway... Um, the faces are doing a better job of controlling the ring early. Like, they're, like, cutting off um, Roderick, triple-teaming him, and then everyone gets in for a four-way brawl. And there's a big early babyface spot where Punk, Walters, and Ace do, like, ten corner punches simultaneously, then do, like, that rowboat, like, starfish thing in the middle of the ring. And then Jacobs gives a Rana to Roderick in the middle of the rowboat. So that was fun. I would say that was probably my favorite spot of the whole match. Um, and it's about 35 more minutes. So, you know, um, uh, Shelly takes over on Jacobs and they get into the heat portion. Um, is this, so I noticed Loki had new, a new outfit. Um, Shelly is just wearing athletic shorts here. Kind of like CM Punk. He's not wearing like trunks. Has he worn the athletic shorts in the other recent matches too? Uh, I don't know. My, my memory for this kind of stuff, especially like clothing stuff, I can barely w- remember what like people close to me wear day to day. Like I, I, I might be clothes blind, Matt. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> some people are clothes lined. I'm clothes blind. I, I like I, it. I, I, I can't remember this stuff. But yeah, I don't I'll know. Pick your, if you, whatever you think, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be leaning on you for these kind of matters. I, I honestly have no idea. What I don't trust my own, uh, my own memory anymore. Um, but I guess it's not important. Um. So all the members of Generation Next like hit running corner attacks on Jacobs. Roderick hits like a rough looking shoulder over the shoulder power bomb on Jacobs for two. Like man, it did not look good. But um Generation Next, like he pulls up Jacobs off the mat by his limbs, like all four of them like grab a limb and they just throw him into the air as high as possible and drop him. And it looks really painful, but it's a pretty good spot if you have four guys. That's one for every body part. Um Um so Aries has Jacobs up for an atomic drop, and Jacobs' tag gets attacked to Punk while he's in the air. But the ref misses it, so they get to keep beating up Jacobs some more. Um, so at this point, Generation X is doing some great teamwork. Um, Evans does like a standing shooting star press while Shelley has Jacobs in a Boston Crab. Um, Jacobs ducks a doomsday like splash-type move like where he's on um, – um, 
airy shoulder and Shelly goes for a splash. Um, so Jerry, so uh, Jacob ducks uh, and um, and he drops uh, Aries and Evans with their heads, uh, like with like face plant moves from the front and the back, and that's when the crowd starts hussing. But Aries cuts him off. Um, so as the ref's back is turned, Aries comes in and just like whacks Jacobs with a chair, and then Shelly hits the shell shock and pins him. So you know that part wasn't so bad. I feel like that's a decent way to start the match, and maybe you've going on a little too long. But I thought that was fine. But then this is the part where I kind of don't don't like, because like I thought that was surprising that you know there was all this beating and then it just ended with a random chair shot. Um, you know, cause I was expecting a hot tag, but I guess that's a good heel move, like to like make you expect it and not get it. So they, they we get this all out brawl, and then Strong quickly takes over on Punk, and I'm like, man, shouldn't there be a little bit of babyface offense on this at this point? But there wasn't. They kept going into the the heat segment. In my opinion, like one heat segment directly into another heat segment is just not as entertaining as they could have made it. Um, I thought Evans was spending like not that much time in the ring. Like he just hits like a big move here and there and escapes. Um, but so Generation X are still doing quick tags in and out. And, um, you know, I'm just, I, I'm just very tired of all the heel stuff at this point. I'm like, these moves are good, but I want to see some hope spots and, you know, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And the crowd is just kind of dying with all of the, uh, you know, the heels kind of dominating. Punk gets a quick small package for a near fall, but Shelly stays on him. And then Shelly tries to slingshot Punk into Roderick, but Punk grabs Roderick, suplexes him onto Roderick. I mean, uh, I mean, suplexes him onto Shelly and then hot tags Walters. So there's finally a hot tag. Walters does a drop toe hold, DDT's Aries at the same time as the drop toe hold on Evans. And then he um, he hits like a, a stunner leg drop combo on Roderick and Shelly. So they, they're clearly like putting Walters in the position of being the impressive one here, which I guess makes sense since he's a new title holder. Um, then Walters tags in Steele, who hits some double team moves on Evans and Walters. And the crowd isn't so into this comeback, and I think it's because they waited too long to do it. Um, so Ace hit a spinal shock on Jack and eliminated him. And, you know, I was surprised that Jack didn't get to hit his biggest moves, but then I realized the night is not over. Um, <laughs> so Ares uh, hits a crucifix bomb on Ace and quickly pins him, and the crowd doesn't even realize it, so it gets, like, no reaction at all. So now it's three to three on two. Um, it's Aries, Strong, and Shelly against Walters and Punk. And um, Nolte mentions that Shelly's nose is busted. And Gabe goes, that'll make your eyes watery, make it difficult to see. And I was like, I bet it, your nose doesn't feel so good either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's like, he hit him right in the ears. It's like, oh man, that's going to give him a nosebleed. Um, but um, so Walters is getting worked over. But he hits a Hurricane DDT out of nowhere on Aries, and the crowd tries to get into it to try to will Walters to a hot tag. Um, Roderick tries another chair shot from behind, but Punk comes in and hits Roderick in the head and drops Aries' neck over the chair. And the ref sees him drop toehold Shelly onto the chair, and he disqualifies Punk. Um, Now, here is my rant. How many matches have we seen where there have just been indiscriminate chair shots in front of the referee, and the referee and the announcers make no comment. They're not always brawls. They're not always even, like, major feuds. They're just, like, matches where a guy uses a chair. How many times have we seen that? 
a lot, and, and it's always hand-waved with just, I guess the refs want to see a clean finish in this match. Sometimes they don't even bother doing that. Sometimes they just say nothing. It's like, oh, yeah. hit him with a chair. Like, now we're exp- – I, I can't remember seeing a, a Ring of Honor per, uh, wrestler get disqualified for using a chair. I'm sure it's happened, but I can't remember it. Can you remember any other instances of that? No, I, I don't think so. And in fact, I was kind of, I, I, it was almost a novelty to see Punk get disqualified because it's the first time I can remember that some that there's been a DQ in a Ring of Honor match. And there might have been another one, but I can't remember it. Yeah, it was a novelty, but like, I don't, it was too inconsistent for me to appreciate. Like, I was just like, this is, this is bullshit. Like, they, they don't do this in ROH. It just seemed like cheap booking to me. Um, and part of the storyline was also that Steamboat was mad at Punk for using a chair because, you know, pure wrestling um so there was that also um so i didn't like that booking and i also just didn't like now it's suddenly down to walters versus three um you know and the crowd just you know at that point you should hear the crowd really getting behind walters but they've the crowd i feel like has just been beaten down so much by this match in terms of like baby face um you know um offense that they don't really seem to care that much and they were into walters at the beginning of the match but like this is a match where the crowd gets less into it as it goes on so basically um starts with walters getting a couple near falls on aries but aries low blows him then generation next just basically methodically works over walters walters gets a comeback with a double lung blower on aries and shelly then he hits three lung blowers on strong and pins strong and I didn't expect that, and it was kind of cool, but the crowd just was already checked out. Um, and Ares doesn't really give Walters any time to breathe. He beats Walters down. He gets the rings of Saturn. And the crowd sort of gets loud as they will him to the ropes. And Steamboat is yelling, crawl at Walters, and getting the crowd to clap. So Walters gets his leg on the rope. Walters tries to fight back against Shelly, but Shelly got gets on the border shitty stretch, and Walters again gets to the ropes. Strong comes back out with a chair. Steamboat tries to stop him, but Strong hits him in the gut, and he goes to hit him in the head, but Steamboat moves, and Steamboat chops Strong a few times and chases him out of the ring, and they kind of fight to the back. And then back in the ring, Walters escapes a superplex and hits a lung blower off the middle rope on Ares. Um, Shelly makes the save, hits a shell shock, um... And then Aries hits the 450 for the pin. So, like, Shelly and Aries are the sole survivors. I kind of get what they were trying to do here. I just don't think it worked. I think the heels were dominating for too long. I don't think there was enough drama up and down the, uh, down the stretch. I didn't like some of the finishes. I, I just, you know, I thought it had promise when it started. I just didn't like the layout, and I don't think they can justify a chair disqualification in ROH. I also just think it just dragged. And and also, I feel like they did not use Punk much at all. Like, Punk could have added a lot of intensity to the match, and I felt like he was barely in the match. So that's why I didn't like this one. This is going to be kind of a uh, a weird review from me, but, like, I agree with a lot of what you say. I get that some of the booking of this match wasn't good. I get that it clearly, like you said, did not work for the crowd where they lost enthusiasm as, as it went on. I still like this match a fair bit. I liked it more than you. I, I actually think it's kind of a slightly better than the uh, the Gen Next Eight Man. I, I, wow! I, yeah, I, I'm going. This is reverse me. I'm, yeah. I'm from a different dimension now. I'm, yeah. I'm going the other way now. Yeah, I would say just for that comparison, I thought this was dramatically worse than that match. <laughs> I, I actually I like the work of this, and I maybe part. I thought the match got worse as it went on, but I like especially the first half, I really like quite a bit. And I think maybe part of why I like this match so much is I love 
Jimmy Jacobs as a face in peril. We've we've commented on that a lot this year in the little bits we've seen him in that role. But this is the match where I was like, if Ring of Iron was going to have an award for best face in peril 2004, it would be Jimmy Jacobs in a landslide. He just gets such good sympathy. He, he takes such crazy bumps, like that bump you mentioned where they all four of them grab him by a limb and toss him in the air. Looks brutal. Like he takes so many bumps in this match where it looks like you're really getting hurt. Like I almost feel like you're being abused, like, like hurt really bad in this match for real. There's a moment where um, Roderick Strong whips, Irish whips him into the corner and uh, Jacobs does the Bret Hart bump. He takes it chest first and he starts stumbling backwards out of it. And Strong just runs and hits like the sick kick, but right to the square of the back. And Jacobs just ping pongs like, like dead weight back into the buckle and just collapses. And, and then is like, you can see the ref even making sure like he's not dead. And then he just is dead weight and gets dragged. And it's so much that like Mark Nolte's in the middle of some long ponderous anecdote or something. And, and you can hear Gabe give like a legit, like, Whoa! like for real in when, when he sees that, like interrupts Nolte, just like, holy shit. Like rewatching this. I forgot how much this guy got murdered. It, it it's crazy and i love that whole and i actually did i like the novelty like i like the novelty that punk got dq'd even though i like you i agree with all your arguments on why it's kind of hypocrite stupid and inconsistent i liked that jacobs got a limit that they tease the hot tag and he even makes it but the ref doesn't see but then he eventually after making some comebacks he eventually just loses out because he never got to make the tag i feel like that's a story you never get to see in wrestling because it would be too disappointing for the fans but because this match had, um, you know, kept going, they were able to actually tell you that story and say, well, here's what happens when a guy doesn't get to make his hot tag. He, he just loses. I do agree that punk, that punk, um, getting to be face in peril very shortly after Jacobs was kind of a downer. It's kind of shows a lack of imagination that you're just immediately going back to the same thing. But again, I liked all the work in this match, like the moves they did. I liked a lot of the triple teams. I always think generation next is great when you just see them on, on offense, you know, kicking ass. And they did a lot of that in this match. So maybe that's where my enjoyment of it comes in. I also agree at the end where they were losing the crowd. I felt like to me, the worst part of the match was that end part because John Walters, you know, when it's him, against three members of Gen Next, the 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 trope of in an elimination match when the baby phase is outnumbered, that should be like the easiest that that kind of match books itself because it should be, you know, whether he wins or loses, it's just so easy to have like he valiantly fights and get something done, but maybe not all the way. But it was so tough because clearly when you watch this match, John Walters was the wrong guy for that role. Because pretty early on, when he's getting outnumbered, there's a moment where like Austin Aries is attacking him and the crowd's cheering for Austin Aries and not him. Like they're chanting for Aries. And then shortly after that, Shelly gets him the border city stretch. And like people are cheering for Shelly to win, not for Walters. And it's like when you're three on one, two or one, two on one, you know, in both those situations and you're the baby face, the crowd should not be like chanting for the heels over you. And it just, it felt like, you know, that maybe that would have been a role, but even though I know they had bigger things in mind for Walters than Jacobs at this point, maybe that would have been better for a Jacobs or a punk, you know, someone that 
the crowd was more behind than Walters where, and then you have Steamboat come back out. So I guess to give the fans their money's worth where he gets into the brawl with, with uh, Roderick strong. But again, it felt like another thing that completely overshadowed the final stretch of the match at a time when, you know, Walters needs all the help you can get. And instead you have like this way more popular legend getting into a crowd, into like a brawl outside with strong. It's just, but yet, I like the actual action, the moves they did, Matt, the moves I, I enjoyed. I, I liked seeing that stuff. I just, I don't know why, I, you know, every part, every argument you make, the crowd and everything is, is correct, but there's something about just the action. I enjoyed it. Maybe I was just in the right mood and I'll, and I'll, I let me say you are in the majority on this, I saw the observer said the live report said this match was too long. And then we'll go to Mike Johnson who wrote, this went way too long. And they actually ended up seven minutes beyond what was booked. The first elimination came much later than planned as well. This was one of those matches where the work wasn't bad, but they seemed to take forever to get where they were going. There wasn't as much of intensity from the crowd as I expected, given that this was basically a rematch of an eight-man tag that the live crowd went ballistic for when Ring of Honor had the outdoor tent show here. It was not basically a rematch. There was, I think, on the, on the babyface side, there was like one person. No, no. It was John one, Walters. Yeah, yeah, John Walters, the only one that was on. Yeah, so it's a totally different match. Yeah, it's a, it's a Gen Next eight man, but yeah. it's elimination and almost a completely different face team. I, I the one thing I will agree with you on is the the Jimmy Jacobs section was to me the best part of the match. Yeah. I just thought it went on for too long. My problem was not with the execution of any of the spots; it was with the layout of the match. And, and like you said, I think this is a match where, for whatever reason. I, I fully accept I am way probably in left field. I think if most people watch this match, they will come away much closer to you and all these live reports and reviews have than I am. But for some well, reason, it just hit me a little different. That's that's great. You know, yeah. it's always good when yeah, I, someone can like something, you know, like so I'm all more power to you. And hey, I got I, you know I also enjoyed Aries and Shelley tried to do a doomsday device and Aries screamed, "Oh, what a rush!" So <laughs> you know instant extra star right there but um after the match alex shelley gets on the mic and he says there's nothing left for generation next to take except one spot and then shelley says tons of fun samoa joe i'm coming for you but then aries snatches the mic from shelley and says he is going after joe aries says there is only one top spot and we'll see who gets it shelley says that they always knew when they formed generation next that there's only one top one top spot but until then Aries needs to keep in mind where his loyalties are. Aries says he knows where his loyalties are, and the two shake hands. So some foreshadowing for the major angle that will happen in Final Battle, and at this point just less than three months away in the timeline. And it's, it, this is a big moment because this is actually when Aries does the kicking Alex Shelley out of the stable angle, he actually like directly references that line even that remember where your loyalties are. So yeah, Gabe was pretty good with the like location booking, like where it's like angles maintain themselves from one from the same city. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I you know, I did like the post match. So yeah. And just again, nice little seating of stuff and then we get what is not a match but i guess technically your semi-main event and that's the trend ass trend acid coming out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next we get uh the midnight express coming to the ring jim Cornette, dennis condry bobby eaton and stan lane they get a nice reaction from the crowd 
Cornette does one of his old school ring introductions for them. And then um, I wrote my notes. I should note that only Dennis Condry decided to dress up for this of the three wrestlers because the other two, like Eaton and Lane, are just in, looks like they just got back from the gym. And at least Condry's wearing a suit jacket. But hey, it's it's their reunion. They can dress how they want. I guess that's um, what that's um, what was it, Mike Johnson, who said that Condry was like looking like a preacher? Yeah, to me, it looked like Condry was the only one who was like took this seriously. Yeah, exactly. But, um, Stan Lane then does his big introduction for Cornette, calls him the world's greatest manager in the world, whatever. And then so Cornette at this point says he's blown up already, and he actually does breathe a little heavy at this point, so I think that was legit. Uh, Cornette says if it wasn't for these three men with in the ring with him, he wouldn't have a career. So I guess for some fans, that might be who to blame. <laughs> but uh, he says tonight they didn't come to perform. They're going to shoot, which is uh, such a cringy line. But anyway. Yeah. yeah I, wonder if, I wonder if it was says cringy in 2004. Yeah, it does get a little bit of a pop from the crowd. So, I mean, they appreciate it. But it's funny because he doesn't really any, say anything shoot worthy. He says he puts over the Midnight Express He's as state-of-the-art tag teams. He says they're, they're tag teams that he's still proud of. Uh, Bobby Eaton then gets the mic to a big chant for Bobby. He thanks everyone. And then he hands back the mic to Cornette after about 10 seconds of speaking to which Cornette responds that give a hand for the most Bobby Eaton has said in 15 years. So that's a <laughs> nice little laugh line. Um, Condry goes next. He calls us a very special night for him. And he also thanks the crowd and gives the mic back very quickly again to Cornette. I guess we know but, why they had Cornette as their manager. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is good proof. And then Cornette says, hold the women down. The gangster of love is in the house. And a couple women do scream for Stan Lane. Um, Lane says he hasn't seen these other guys in years, but they're like brothers to him. And he puts o- and he puts over these young lion wrestlers in Ring of Honor that we've seen tonight. Um, Stan Lane has an absolutely golden voice. And he actually comes off as the best, I would say, of anyone here. Like, Not that anyone did a bad job, but he talks a little more. But he's very gracious. And he, he like puts over that these young drip guys in the back have come up to us all night and been so humble and put us over like when they're – Rest, like he's putting over the wrestlers. I thought that was very giving of him instead of just taking the moment completely for himself, which would be fully in his right to do. Um, then he puts over the fans. He says that you were some of the first fans in Philly that turned heels babyface. And uh, yeah, I thought I thought everyone here did a good thank you, but I felt like Stan Lane so was actually came off as pretty genuine and gracious. Um, Cornette said that the only thing that would make this better would be if Big Bubba Rogers could be here. And so we sh- uh, to give that some context, in the week before this show, uh, the big boss man, Ray Trailer, he passed away. So this was fresh in everyone's minds at this point. Um, Jim puts over Ray Trailer as a hell of a guy, hell of a wrestler, and a hell of a human being. He gets the crowd to cheer one more time for the big boss man. The crowd gives a big round of applause, and they chant Bubba, which was... His original gimmick is Big Bubba Rogers, one of the Cornets like muscle men. Um, Cornet puts over the Philly fans as some of the first to appreciate them. And he says this is where they wanted to come to do their first reunion because of that. He says the fans here in Ring of Honor work as hard as the wrestlers. And then Cornet thanks everyone again. He says good night when Prince Nana comes out and he gets booed. Condry takes off his suit jacket immediately, which I thought was funny. And uh, Nana gets the mic and says, you, you know, you can put the jacket back on. This is friendly. But I like that, like, Condry was already reacting to him and he kept the jacket off. Um, 
Nana says this is a very touching situation. I thought that was a funny choice of words. He says the crowd doesn't deserve to have the honor of seeing these guys in Ring of Honor. And then he says that Jim is established manner and just like Jim, established manager and just like Jim, he is too. And he has the most respect from the crowd. Crowd, of course, boos this. Cornette says he sounds as phony as a get well card from an undertaker. And he tells him to stop beating around the bush. Just say what you're going to say. Nana says that now that he's maxed out his Swiss bank accounts, he's gotten a loan from his great uncle in Ghana. I like that he's continuing now. He's he's established before that he's he had a, he maxed out, he cleaned out his bank account, so now he has to get a loan. And he brought in someone to join his embassy that knows more than the Midnight's and um, is in his eyes the real express. So old-time rock and roll hits, and out comes Ricky Morton with the rest of the embassy. A uh, big rock and roll chant for Ricky Morton at first. He grabs the mic. He thanks Nana for flying him first class. He calls the Midnight Express speech as bullshit, and he wants to know the brain surgeon who put tonight together. Ricky then is able to turn the crowd and draw booze by saying that the rock and roll stomped the Midnights for the tag titles here in Philly in 1986. By the way, that's the equivalent of talking about a tag team title match that happened in 2002, if, we're, oh. if you're doing it today. Just FYI. Oh God! Somehow that makes me feel old. No, that's why. That's why I said it. I'm trying to make you feel old. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, He says they held the. He held. um, Let me just. Oh, he says they held tonight in Philly because down south the people would tell the Midnights to kiss their ass if they did this there. Um, Morton says if the Morton uses the old if the world needed an enema you'd stick the hose here line that Bret Hart popularized on the uh, Beyond the Mat and the Raw promo where and all that stuff. Um, he calls Jimmy Rave a good friend of his, which I got a kick out of. And he says the fans left him no choice but to join the embassy because the fans turned their back on him. He, then Morton uh, calls the outcast killers the future of wrestling. Uh, <laughs> Morton says it should be the Rock and Roll Express being celebrated tonight, not the Midnight Express. He wants to know why they're being celebrated when they only won the tag titles twice and, and the Rock and Rolls won it five times. Cornette then says it's because they had the good goddamn common sense to retire to begin with, which was a pretty good line. Uh, but, um, but but I also was thinking after I heard that one, who's we, Jim? Exactly. <laughs> and also, this was supposed to start like their, as we'll talk about in a minute, like their comeback tour, including matches. So Ricky Morton yeah. still wrestling in the present day, for the record. For New Japan with those young lions that Stan Lane was talking about. So, yeah. um, also, just another thing about wrestlers in ages. Um, side side point: Ricky Steamboat, when they called him an old man, he was younger at the time of this show than the guy who just lost the uh, title to Braun Strowman at um, at WrestleMania this year. <laughs> FYI. Holy sh! Holy cow! Yeah. So yeah. Any, anyway, uh, Ricky says that they. Um, how about we retire you guys permanently, and then he and the embassy attack. Uh, the Midnights quickly take out the embassy. Cornet uses the racket. Eaton. They do a few of the old Midnight moves. Eaton ends up doing the rocket launcher on Prince Nana. Uh, Cornet puts on Prince Nana's crown. The Midnights pose to a big pop, and then after much teasing, Cornet hits Nana in the crotch with his tennis racket, and they leave to their music. Um, and I, I, we should also mention that uh, Ricky Morton escaped. He, he was the only guy here. He did not take a bump. So smart Ricky Morton, even though he still wrestled for to this day. Still, he, he still does Tope, still does Canadian Destroyers. Yeah. And I think that's what I was talking about before when I said we're going to allude to like something later about how the age of things is weird. Like Ricky Morton, like 
well, we'll just get into it in a minute. I guess I should wait because there's a quote that I really want to reference. But first, I just want to say I personally thought this was really well done. I thought the speeches didn't go too long. I thought they were gracious. I thought they singled out like Philly. They made a good job of making the Philly crowd feel like we're specifically doing this for you guys. Um, you know, and, and while the Nana Embassy stuff is kind of standard, you've seen this a million times when Legends come to Ring of Honor or a lot of other promotions. Again, it was, you know, gave you a chance to see a few of the signature moves and every a celebration. And, and also, most importantly, I thought Ricky Morton gave a hell of a heel promo here. I, I, I thought he did a really good job, actually. And so, yeah, I, I thought this was good. Exactly what it, it should have been, in my opinion. I would have agree with most of that. I definitely thought the best part was Ricky Morton. The one thing I would say is this is the sort of thing that you really it really is for the live crowd. You know, like to me this isn't really like a DVD angle because it doesn't really go anywhere. Like it's it's sort of boilerplate. Like it's nice. They did a nice thing. Everyone did a nice job. But I feel like if you were there live it would have been much cooler than watching it at home. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not a match. It's like a special moment for the live crowd. And, and something we mentioned earlier which is I think you brought this up, which is this might have aged differently in that sense. In the when you consider that nowadays, like wrestling reunions and convention reunions and nostalgia acts are, feel like they're way more prevalent in every level of wrestling. And as you mentioned, that you know Goldberg is main eventing at an age older now than Ricky Steamboat hat was when he was considered like. You know, everyone in Ring of Honor at this point is like making jokes about how old Steamboat is, and now they're you know Goldberg's main eventing WrestleMania older, but. Um, yeah, I, I, I get that point that it's, yeah, it, it, if, if you, you, some people I can see might say, well, I've seen a lot of this depending on how, what they've watched in wrestling. A lot of these kind of come back one more goodbye, like reunion things. Um, but, but I was before the live crowd, I, it sound, it seems like it was fantastic. Yeah, and again, the crowd was 200 more than the last show in Philly, and how much of that is them moving out of the Ramada? How much is that moving, you know, how much of that is having Danielson and Joe in the main event? I don't know, but I'm sure some people bought tickets just to see this. I'm sure. I mean, there were 200 people that did the Q&A for 15 bucks, so I'm sure someone came to see this reunion. For sure. So, some live notes. Uh P.W. Torch wrote that Ring of Honor Booker Gabe Sapolsky grew up watching the wrestlers he is bringing in to be featured attractions at Ring of Honor events. He says bringing them to Ring of Honor is a way of honoring them for their contributions to wrestling and their influence on him and the industry. Gabe says, I can't speak for other promotions, but in Ring of Honor, it's our way of honoring those who have influenced us and those who have made us love this business. It's our way of paying, paying respect to those who made Ring of Honor possible and those we have learned our trade from and set the standard we try and follow. When you talk to people like Steamboat and Foley and Cornette, you realize they had, that they had the same attitude of the Ring of Honor wrestlers back in the day. They were ahead of their time. They did new things. They took risks. And they did things outside the lines that many veterans frowned upon or tried to hold back. So we always make a focal, them a focal point because they paved the way for Ring of Honor. Then I like they got to this part, and this is where it gets kind of funny. Um, the presence of Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express at Sunday's Philly show Wade Keller says, was symbolic in that Ring of Honor is known for having a strong tag team division. Sapolsky says that's no accident. Quote, I always enjoyed good tag team wrestling, he says. Whether it was something like the Midnight Express versus the Fantastics, or the Freebirds versus the Von Erichs, or the great All Japan tag team matches of the early 90s, or it's stuff from ECW like the Eliminators versus RVD and Sabu, there is just something really special about a great tag team match. 
I always envisioned the Ring of Honor tag titles as being in a main event spot in Ring of Honor, and I feel a good tag division can really add tremendously to a promotion. They give you some diversity on the cards and some, fl some flexibility of what to do with the world champion. Ha regarding working with them this weekend, Gabe tells the torch, having the opportunity to work with Jim Cornette, Bobby Eaton, Dennis Condry, and Stan Lang will definitely go down as one of my all-time highlights. There will, they were all a pleasure to work with, and as always with Cornette, I came away learning more about both and the business they are were also great to have in the locker room and i wish it was 20 years ago because they because they were doing then what ring of honor wrestlers are doing now and that's changing the business and setting new standards so a lot of just generic gabe using this to put over ring of honor as he does you know in general which was his job as booker but i did kind of laugh matt at gabe going like acting like tag team wrestling was a huge part of ring of honor because one of the biggest weaknesses i would say at ring of honor is apart from a few up to this point, like good patches, it, the tag division's been kind of a mess this entire time, and definitely not like a world tight like title main event level belt usually. No, yeah, it's it, and yeah, it's going to be a while I think before they still get there, but they do eventually get to a decent point with it. Aries and Strong's run, I think, really helps. Yes, I agree. Yeah, and then I thought it was interesting also that um. Dave Meltzer's take on this segment. He wrote, One thing smart about this is that, well, this got an incredible reaction. They're smart enough to know that there is no way to follow it. I don't know of any promotion that wouldn't try and bring them, them, them being the Midnight Express, back for a batch. But there was no plans for that. Even Gabe Sapolsky said that it was clear that the crowd came more to see the Midnight Express than anything else, and that a lot of older fans he hadn't seen in a while were back. Cornette recognizes the limitations in that he'll go he'll do Midnight Express matches in small Carolinas or Tennessee towns with the rock and rolls and others, figuring that they can get by on comedy spots. In big cities where fans want athletic wrestling, he's not going to risk embarrassment. The reaction was Cornette and Morton were great on the mic. The people loved it, but you could see the age of everyone involved here when it came to even doing just the three spots they did. The idea was to use them to give Nana's group a little rub as well. Uh, one more thing. Mike Johnson says that there's a possibility Ricky Morton may be back down the line. I don't think he ever came back, Matt. Do you remember? I don't think Ricky Morton did come back to Ring of Honor. I don't remember him ever coming back. And if you hear bangs in the background, the fireworks have begun. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I warned Matt before the show that there might be thunder in the background. And you warned me about fireworks. And I were, but to be fair, Matt, I can't hear fireworks right now. And if they are in the background, it'll be a fun little... That's the move for the... It's a celebration of our final match coming yeah, up. Yeah, sparks are going to fly in this last match. But but the thing I was alluding to earlier that I wanted to mention, I thought Matt was just funny, is that uh, it's funny that they're acting like, oh, these guys are too old to book. And they you know they probably wouldn't have fit in, in Ring of Honor. They probably wouldn't have been right to book. But it is funny considering like that Ricky Morton was booked in New Japan wrestling matches in the U.S. in the last year. like And was... And an entertaining part of them. Like, yeah, did, did did a good job. I saw him alive a couple times at AEW and at the New Japan show at the Hammerstein. And yeah, he was. I mean, he, was he did a good job in both. I um, and it's again, it's again, years younger. Yeah, yeah, almost eighteen years later. No, no, sixteen years later. Excuse yeah. me, almost yeah. sixteen years later. And yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, to think that it was like well. 
you know, these guys were beloved, but we can't put them in a match here. And then years later, you know, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson were working like WrestleMania weekend indie shows against LAX a couple of years ago and getting big pops and doing like, like you said, Canadian destroyers and shit. Like just who knows what he would have done at WrestleMania weekend this year if it had happened. (laughs) Yeah. Gotten COVID. Um, well, moving on. (laughs) 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 Bring us back to reality every time. Uh, and the, well, finally, uh, th- this will be the good palate cleanser, our main event. And I'll let you be the first to talk on this since I had to s- talk so goddamn much to recap that segment. But the Ring of Honor world title match, we've been wor- waiting for this match. In some ways, it's been teased and alluded to for literally over a year of Ring of Honor at this point. Samoa Joe successfully defended the title when he defeated Brian Danielson via submission in 39-16 when Danielson tapped out to the rear naked choke. Matt, this is probably two of our favorite wrestlers of the era of all time. Two guys I think we would both put on the Ring of Honor Mount Rushmore if we were forced to construct one. We They've had a couple of matches in Ring of Honor in the early days, but this is them both kind of in their primes. What They go nearly 40 minutes in a main event. What do you think about this match, Rewatching it all these years later? Well, okay, so this match was always one of my, like, top matches in my memory. Like, if I was to make a short list of favorite matches in ROH history, this was always on it. Always on the short list. Top 10, maybe top 5. Like, best of the best. So, with that said, I don't think it quite lived up to that level for me. It was maybe a little bit not all that I remembered, but it was still like, and I, and I hate to even lead with that because I, from here on out, I'm going to be very positive. It was a freaking great match. Like a fantastic, fantastic match. Um, first of all, it had a big match vibe. Like I would say right off, right from the start. The only thing that put a damper on the vibe for me was the stupid lighting. Uh, it just looked so <laughs> bad. Um, but yeah, it somehow gets more offensive when it's a really great match. Like, yeah, like a big like, deal uh, match. Yeah. Um, yeah, like it was just like, dark and weird and orange, <laughs> you know, I don't know. But um, at the beginning, I thought the crowd was pro-Danielson, like they were really cheering for him, but then during the match, it seemed like they were pro-Joe, maybe because Danielson was kind of working heel. Um, but, you know, Joe got a huge streamer introduction, so they still were, they still liked him. And Nolte um, was, um, like, at the beginning of the match, started off just, like, ranting for a long time, doing his Nolte thing. Like, talking about strategy, Joe's weight advantage, all this stuff. And I imagine Gabe, probably before the match, was just like, hey, man, this is all you. You do your thing. Yeah. Um, so, I guess this is this is the kind of stuff he brought Nolte in for, right? Um, is to do that. Like, Nolte says that Joe wants to build the title with as many victories as he can, but he also says that Joe is susceptible to a quick cradle or a pinning combo. And Danielson is a good technical wrestler who can do it. So um, that's fine. I have no problem with Nolte doing that. Um, so they do a slow feeling out process early. And the first like big-ish move is an enziguri by Danielson out of nowhere. But then it goes right back to the mat. To the mat. Both guys are wrestling pretty defensively. Um, and so like during this like slow start, the announcers have time to talk about a, a lot of the background. Speaking of background, fireworks in the background. I don't know if you can hear them. I um, might have faintly heard a couple, but yeah. uh, again, don't worry about it. It's, it, it's barely noticeable. and it's, It just gives uh, me an ambiance as I talk. Um, all right, so 
So Gabe says that this match is going to have a five-minute overtime period if it goes to a 60-minute draw. So Nolte, of course, being Nolte, is just like... So basically, it's a 65-minute time limit. And, 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 Gabe, and Gabe goes, yeah, but with a rest period after 60 minutes. And Nolte's like, so there's going to be like a little halftime show, too? Like, like he's openly like kind of mocking Gabe's book. Yeah, like, what's this problem? Jesus. Um, but it is true that a 65-minute time limit doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, what's like, is five minutes such a magic number? Like, why not just make it 90 minutes or no time limit? Um, so I do agree with that point a little bit. Um, I get why he did it, though, because like, you're saying it's not going to end in a draw, but it could very easily still end in a draw if it was 65. Anyway, um, so this is actually Danielson's first title shot um, in ROH, which is pretty remarkable to think about, but it's true. Um, so like, it's at first, it seems like Dragon's going after the leg. He's doing like stomps, dragon screws. He does a test of strength, which Joe easily wins. But then Danielson hits like a bunch of headbutts while he has the knuckles locked. And he actually gets some booze for doing the aisle have till five. So this is the moment that I noticed, oh, maybe the crowd is not pro Danielson. I don't know. Um, so they do this sequence where Joe tries to hit Danielson and kick him. Um, but Danielson keeps like running away and then he does like a little dance, kind of like a boxer, like, like almost like Muhammad Ali. Rope-a-dope. Yeah. It's like showing that he's doing the rope-a-dope and the crowd is definitely into that. And like that, like, so he's kind of making his strategy plain, like he's making it clear. And it seems like during this part, you know, the match is back and forth, but Danielson is more in control. Like if you really had to pick, like he's stretching Joe on the mat. But Joe will then just, like, knock Danielson down with, like, one big forearm shot. Um, you know, he suplexes him over the top to the floor. And he go- he does his ole-ole kick. But as usual, he misses the first time. I'm looking at Mark Nolte when he says that, when I say that, because Nolte was like, oh, this is the only time that's ever happened in the other match. But it actually happens in almost every big match. He misses the first ole-ole attempt. So what happens is he goes for the kick, but Danielson grabs his leg and hits it against the guardrail. Which, you know, I thought that was a pretty cool way of blocking it. Uh, Then he does, I think this is the first time he's ever done, you mentioned this earlier, a springboard flip dive onto Joe in the aisle. When he was champion, the the flip dive into the crowd became one of his signature spots. But I I don't remember him doing it in ROH before this. And then then after he does it, he goes, this motherfucker is going to pay. And I'm just thinking, thinking, like, pay for what? (laughs) (laughs) For wrestling against me. Um, <laughs> um, How but, dare he give me a title shot? <laughs> Fuck you, man. Like, yeah. He then does his own ole ole drop kick and then another one. Um, and despite the fact that Danielson is winning the match, Nolte's like, this isn't the match Danielson wants to wrestle. Oh. And, and he criticizes Danielson for keeping Joe on the floor. Um, but it's like he was winning. Like, you know, he was winning the whole thing, and then he peed back, and even he throws Joe back in the ring, and he's still in control. Um, But that's when Joe comes back with a series of strikes, and Danielson just pokes him in the eye to regain control. And I wrote, even in this match, they got to do eye pokes. Like, like, this should be called the ring of eye pokes. If I was a veteran wrestler, I would start the eye poke faction, I think, to to face against Steamboat and uh, Foley, Um, because they do a lot. and speaking of Danielson's charisma, he does his little, like, Rick Rude hip swivel thing at the fans who are booing him. So this is, like, every match you see Danielson get more and more, like, play to the crowd. And, you know, this is definitely a culmination of all that. Between the, this motherfucker's gonna pay, the eye pokes, the hip swivel, like, he's really, like, trying hard to work the crowd. Um, 
Um, eventually, Danielson goes to Joe's arm, and Gabe even notes that Danielson's been dominating because, you know, he's actually watching the match instead of trying to create his own narrative where his strategy is better than the wrestlers. Um, so um, they trade slaps. Joe gets um, um, Joe gets the advantage with, with slaps and knees, and then he takes Danielson down. But Danielson kicks Joe off and takes back control with a bunch of European uppercuts. So, like... It looks like the story so far is that Joe really can't get an advantage on Danielson. Like, Danielson sort of has his number. Um, But Joe takes over with, like, a go-to-sleep style move. Only instead of uh, kneeing Danielson in the face, he knees him in the uh, midsection. But other than that, it's, like, pretty much just a go-to-sleep. And then Joe kicks Dragon's ribs, and Dragon does the coughing fit cell, which you do not see very often. Like, the... (laughs) rib cell. The one guy that I I can think of who would do that a lot was Hulk Hogan. Wouldn't he always do like the coughing with the ribs and like, you know, like the convulsing a little bit? Um, Danielson, one of his favorite early wrestlers was Ultimate Warrior. Maybe he got that from... There's a real possibility he got that from Hogan. Yeah, I mean, it's also a a sensible way to sell your ribs. Um, He did a great job of of, of doing that. He like, acted like he was going to cough up a lung. Yeah. Um, So now Joe's finally in control. He does a half crab where he digs a knee into Danielson's shoulder. Um, But then he goes after Danielson's ribs. Um, But Danielson comes back pretty quickly. Hits uh, an axe. He he basically puts his hand into an axe handle and like just like hits him with like a bunch of like axe handle shots to like the the head and the the midsection. He does a bunch of European uppercuts. Um, So like neither guy is really getting too much momentum. And this is the point where Nolte says that Samoa Joe is like a panther, and this will come into play later. Um, <laughs> um, Daniels. <laughs> so Danielson gets a uh, hits a diving headbutt for two, which I think was like the first real notable near fall of the match. Um, then Joe, uh, then he catches Joe in a quick fisherman suplex and gets two. Danielson does a drop kick, but then Joe just like jumps up and hits an Insigiri and Nolte yells, Insigiri by the Panther, which is a, uh, which is a famous call. And I think, I think a great call. Like I think that's like a legendary call in an ROH title match. Um, I love that he like sets it up with that comment, like, you know, Solo Joe's like a Panther. And then that, with that line, like minutes later, he acts like everyone's been calling Joe the Panther. <laughs> it's like another great move by the Panther. <laughs> it's a great, it's, it's a classic moment. Watch this match just for that call. Insecurity by the Panther. Because when you think about Solo Joe, you definitely think of a Panther. <laughs> They should make a movie called Joe the Panther. Um, part of the, the famous Panther series. Um, Joe then hits um, – like he, so he hits the elbow suicida on Dragon and that's sort of like I think like the signal moment where like, OK, this match is in third gear now. Um, Joe hits the ole ole kick this time, almost knocks the guardrail over with it. He does another one and on the way there, he gives Green Lantern fan a middle finger. Um, so that's a, a, a moment, I guess. Um, um, the crowd, so after the second um, Ole Ole kick, the crowd chants, he's fucked up. And I don't know. I feel like that's a pretty stupid chant that you wouldn't hear today, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, do you think crowds would chant, he's fucked up now? No, I think fans actually, they've. it's no longer, like, even like thinking about like 
Ring of Honor was still trying to, at this point, sell that Jay Lethal has a concussion. I feel like everyone's so much more aware of, like, head trauma that no one thinks that's, like, a fun, cool thing to think that you might have witnessed. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. Um, so now Joe goes back into the ring to take a breather, which is a surprising move in a big title match, but he lets Dragon collect himself on the outside. So I thought that was interesting. And on the way back in, Danielson, like, he clips Joe's leg, so... Bad strategy by Samoa Joe, but it doesn't. But Nolte doesn't really get on him for it. For, interestingly enough, um, but Danielson's back. He's fully in control. Um, he's targeting Joe's leg again. Uh, he does a fallaway like Indian Deathlock type move, and then like an Indian Deathlock Muda Lock, and Joe quickly gets to the ropes. Uh, then Danielson like runs at Joe, and Joe tries to do his big corner slam. But Danielson like reverses it into a headlock takeover, which I think might be the first time I've ever seen anybody, you know, during this rewatch, reverse that like that corner slam move, um, which makes you say, "Oh, this is a big match!" Like he's reversing big moves for the first time. Um, Danielson goes for a body press off the middle rope, but Joe hits the uh, hits that hits the, the slam this time. Then Joe locks in the STF. But he sells his own knee, so he has to release the STF and go to the crossface. Uh, Dragon gets the ropes from there. Dragon gets another Indian Deathlock on with a bridge and turns it over like he did with Shelly. And I love the, I lo- you know, we've talked about how much I love Danielson working the Indian Deathlock. Um, it was great here, you know, especially on Joe's like giant legs. Um, <laughs> so Joe gets his pat- snap power slam, does a cross arm breaker. But Danielson escapes and hits a regal plex, which was very impressive on Samoa Joe. But he can't oh, yeah. bridge. He can't bridge it though, so he just covers him for two. Then he gets on the cattle mutilation, which gets a big pop. My only complaint here was that he was targeting the leg, which has nothing to do with the cattle mutilation. But I guess you can argue that you know he's, he's keeping him down on the ground, and maybe that's enough. Um, so Danielson turns the cattle mutilation into a pinning combo, gets a two count, and the crowd pops big for that one. Um, so uh, Danielson, he gets he goes for the top rope back suplex. Joe escapes, grabs the choke on the ropes, and then German suplexes Danielson off the middle rope. Hits a big lariat, gets a two, and the crowd pop big for that two count also. Danielson escapes the muscle buster, hits a series of forearms, then goes back to the knee to take Joe down. Hits a dragon suplex, but again, he can't hold the bridge on Joe. So he goes back to the cattle mutilation. Um, crowds now the crowd is fully going nuts. They were sort of like up and down earlier, but now they're like over the moon about this. Um, they're going nuts the whole time in the cattle mutilation. Joe makes the ropes, and at this point the crowd is like, "Oh, maybe there's going to be a title change." Like they're on their feet. Joe hits big knees to Dragon's head, but uh, Danielson gets gets like kind of escapes the position and hits his own knees. Then Joe comes back with more big knees, uh, grabs the choke. Rolls him into the middle of the ring, gets the tap out. Um, I thought that the story where Dragon had his number early, but Joe just wouldn't give up, um, and his hold was just that good, was a good one. Um, I thought that Danielson's strategy of going to the leg in the last third of the match was interesting because it didn't play into the finish, you know, but Danielson used the weakened leg to get him down and get the cattle mutilation. So I thought this match was awesome. It just didn't quite live up to my memory of being like a perfect match, if that makes sense. Like, like I, I don't think it was like at like the most elite all time ROH matches level. I'm not even totally sure it was my favorite match of this year so far. 
but it was, you know, fantastic. High up there. You know, definitely, uh, you know, probably a top 10 ROH match of all time as of the time it happened. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like as of October 2004, like very, very high on the list. Um, I think it's eclipsed by other matches for me. I'm very curious to see how Joe vs. Punk 2 compares to it. But just a fantastic match. It was different um, because Danielson really did dominate and like they built to this really epic final stretch where like Danielson was just like pulling out everything and the crowd really was up for it. So, uh, you know, Joe has not had a match like this yet. You know, in some ways it's actually like a kind of standard main event that really builds to this crescendo. But in another way, I can't think of another ROH match that really had this structure at this point. Um, so I really, I really loved it. It was great. Like it was a really great match that you should watch, and it's free on YouTube. So definitely watch it. So I don't want to v- dwell on anything negative. Great, great, great match. I um, I think it says something about how much we love because my thoughts are going to be pretty similar to yours. I think it says something about how much we love Samoa Joe and Brian Danielson that they can have a match this great, and we can feel like slightly disappointed because I mean, yeah, yeah. Most other wrestlers, this would be a career highlight probably. And um, so when I when I rewatched this a uh, night or two ago, I wrote some tweet about how, you know, because I've been having insomnia lately. So I watched it late and I was like, you know, I'm pacing. I'm not going to give away what I felt about the match. And someone that followed me, I'll, I'll shout them out. Daniel Betzel wrote to me on Twitter. He said, so either you think it's one of the best matches ever and possibly Joe's best match ever, which I'm leaning toward, or you thought it was a match that didn't hold up at all. I'm hoping it's the first because goddamn, I love that match. Now, I'm probably going to disappoint him because I don't think I'm either i don't think this is one of the best matches samoa joe ever had but i also think it 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 absolutely is a great wrestling match this is a a great match maybe a better way for me to describe how i thought of it is this which is i remember when people always talked about uh the flare steamboat trilogy the three matches they did in 89 and they're considered some of the greatest matches of all time and there'd be these interviews these interviews with flair where he'd be like yeah, those matches were good, but we were having matches like that every night on, you know, on house shows for years, and we've had better matches on the house shows. And when I watched this match, I got the impression that if you took 2000 Joe, 2004 Joe and 2004 Brian Danielson and had them wrestle 10 times, this might be like in the middle of the pack. Like they could probably wrestle this match 10 more times and have five better and five worse. And so it's a great match, but it's not like I got this feeling of like you guys could probably do even better. I never felt like never felt like this was the night where like sometimes you see a great match and you're like these two guys everything's clicking and this is the best they can do and you know it was like I bet this was a match where it was great and I actually came away thinking I guarantee you guys could probably do better if you had like a couple more shots at this. But I don't think they ever did. Also, no, yeah, that, that's the other thing. That's that's yeah, that's the weird fact about it. This arguably probably is their best match, but yet for some reason I didn't feel like like they had reached their full potential with this match. Yeah. But um, watching it, one thing these guys are both known for, you know, they took real pride in is they loved, you know, when you listen to their shoot interviews from this era about, they were really proud of the matches that they called the least where they had almost little to nothing pre-planned. I know Joe, I think talking about an earlier Danielson match, even talked about it during this era that like they had like, no pre-planning they just like nodded at each other and said we'll see you in the ring like they came up with no ideas and this match feels like this match feels like they came up with nothing until they got in the ring like it feels very organic like they're thinking up what they're going to do as it 
happens, which is often good. I think it does lead to a little bit of this match's minor weakness, which is you kind of touched on it. There are things in this match that don't really have a lot of payoff. Like I would say other than Danielson dominating the match to a surprising degree, like I would say Danielson probably controls 70% of the match, which against Samoa Joe in this era was really kind of unheard of for opponents of him in Ring of Honor. But there, there are things like Danielson works on the leg a little bit early in the match, but then he kind of doesn't go back to it. And then he goes back to it more seriously later. And Joe does, it does affect him in moves like the STF, like you mentioned, but like you said, it doesn't really play into the end of the match. And there's things like Joe works on Danielson's stomach a little bit and Danielson sells it, but it doesn't really have a huge impact later in the match. And, and it's things like that where even the early part of the match where the mat wrestling was all good, really good, but a lot of it really does feel like two super talented guys and they're kind of figuring out what the match is going to be as they're ha working it. It, it. You can kind of feel it. And sometimes maybe that's why it doesn't quite feel like that five-star epic where everything is just filled with emotion and meaning right from the start. It, it is more just two maestros, you know, painting whatever they feel like as they go. But thought this match was great still because this is a match Matt, and i don't know if you will agree with this but i know when we did uh your um list them and learn the second time we did list them and learn which we did the episode ranking our 10 best ring of honor wrestlers ever and that was the show that kind of served as a pilot for uh this show so if you haven't heard that go to the cubsfan.com and check it out and all of matt's shows because they were great but um I think I put Joe above Danielson for the number one spot, and I think you went the other way. Um, this match, it, it's funny. I still kind of feel like I'm right, but in on this night, I feel like even the, with both guys in their primes, I feel like Danielson outworked Joe, and I thought Joe was great, but I thought, and maybe it's just because Danielson took so much of the match, but I thought Danielson just put on a show here. Like he has a lot of those Danielson elements. We'll see later when he's being the champion where he's kind of heel, but kind of not where, you know, like the cocky swagger and he'll cheat if he has to with stuff like the eye poke, but he's not like constantly looking to cheat. And just that, that anger, that swagger, it, it's starting to come in a little bit. And I just felt like there's like so many l things Danielson does here. Like he gives you a, a little bit of everything. Like he does the big flip dive that he wouldn't do till years later. He does like the crazy coughing cell that you won't see from many wrestlers. And I think the thing I appreciate most about this match and the thing that kind of exposed Mark Nolte is that this match plays against your expectations. Um, the whole first part of the match is Matt wrestling and Danielson, I would say gets the better of it, but Joe, like, does get a fair bit of it too. Like he gets to hold his own compared to like the homicide Nigel match where when they go to the mat, homicide gives Nigel pretty much all of the mat work and just like he gets to win almost all of it, which makes sense. And in this match, likewise, Danielson like trade strikes and, and, and big hard blows with Joe for pretty much throughout the match. And Joe, you know, knocks him down and, and really beats him up a few times. But Danielson gives as good as he, he got. And so it goes against the story you would naturally think. And like you mentioned, Mark Nolte's habit of always imposing his story for a match and ignoring what's actually happening, 
happening because throughout this match, he's like, you know, Danielson's the technical guy. He has the advantage there. And Joe, you know, you don't want to get into a stand-up fight with Joe. You don't want to fight with him on the outside because he'll end you. But yet, if you watch how they work the match, they each go into the other's kind of quote-unquote specialty and more than do well at it. They, they do really well at it. So they kind of play against type on that. And it was kind of annoying that Nolte couldn't let go of his pre-thought, like pre-planned idea of what this match would be. Um, and I, I think the match, I appreciate it more on this rewatch, having rewatched all the shows in order, because it, again, a lot of on the rewatch, it's the novelty of seeing that Joe I don't think Joe has ever given someone since he's risen to this level this much of the match. Like, like it's one of the only Samoa Joe title matches at this point where it feels like, you know, he does that last burst of energy after the near falls where he does the big knees and then Danielson does a few knees, but then he comes back with his knees and then immediately goes to the choke where afterwards, even the way Joe sells where he's like slumped against the ropes, it, it doesn't, it's one of the rare Joe title matches where he doesn't win where you feel like, oh, he's just the fucking man. He he killed that guy. It feels like he barely got out of that. Like, that was his last gas. And if it, that didn't work, he might have been screwed. Like, like, Danielson absolutely pushed him to the limit. And Joe was kind of on the defensive. And I think there's a novelty that really makes that work for me. Um, and, and those final 10, 15 minutes, like you said, really pick up into the, that's when it re, this match really raises to another level. And the fact that it is one of the matches where at this point, Joe's title reign had been so long. I imagine a lot of his matches with lower tier opponents, people were having a harder and harder time buying into that they could beat him. And this match is one of those matches where clearly in those last 10 minutes, they got fans to believe like we might see the title. Cha- this might be where Joe finally loses the title. Danielson might be the guy to do it. So I think from any match from here on out in like Joe's run that can do that definitely deserves praise just for that even. And, and they, you know, you got the feeling they really wanted Danielson at one point to win just because it would have been like a cool moment to be there live for. And yeah, I, I thought this, it, it's, it's a great match. It's not, I, you know, I don't want to tip my hat. I don't think it's going to be my match of the year. I don't even know where it's going to fall on my list. It, it's, it's maybe not as high as someone that's never seen this match before might think, Brian Danielson versus Samoa Joe in their prime. This is going to be like the best match I've ever seen in my life. Like you were saying how your memory of it was like, this is a near perfect match. I don't think it's that. I agree with modern Matt Feuerstein. But, but, <laughs> Ma, but, that's my new nickname. But again, like I, like I started this off with, it says something that these guys, that even a match that is a slight disappointment is still a fantastic wrestling match. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to tip my hand too much, but my matches of the year right now, I'm still thinking... Samoa Joe against Jay Briscoe, and um, that I really like that Danielson Aries finale at uh, Survival of the Fittest, the the street fight at uh, Death Before Dishonor Night Two. Those are all matches that just come to my mind when I think of the best match so far of the year. Y- yeah, and a few other big ones still to come. You know, like we we are not done with this year yet. Um, so going to, there was definitely comments and discussion on this match afterwards. So I'll just go first off. I thought it was funny that you brought, I, I wanted to say this. I, I love that you brought that, uh, that 60 to 65 minute thing. Cause Wade Keller had a very similar rant to your thing. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Wade wrote in the torch. 
Ring of Honor announced that the Joe versus Danielson match will have a 60-minute time limit, but in case of a draw, they will have a five-minute overtime. I understand that they're trying to send a message to fans that they can expect to see a 60-minute classic, because why else bother announcing the overtime step? But in reality, what point is there having an overtime? Just make the match 65 minutes long instead. It's not like hockey where the score is tied after regulation, you go to overtime. The entire Joe versus Danielson match is sudden death and could end at any time anyway. So, you know, Wade definitely felt similar, which is like... Yeah, he's right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, I des- it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why not have a 65-minute time limit then rather than 60 minutes, a break, and then just five more minutes? But like, but the announcer on the actual show shouldn't be making that point. <laughs> also, one other thing I know that... Yeah, oh, I completely agree. But also, one other thing I thought was weird is... We didn't mention the uh, the elimination tag had time calls every five or ten minutes, I think. And this match that goes nearly 40 minutes that goes longer than that match doesn't have time calls, which I thought was a little. I, I, I guess for some reason they must have wanted a reason to have time calls for that elimination match. Although, ironically, according to uh, Mike Johnson, they went seven minutes longer anyway, even with the time calls. Oy. But, um, then we'll go to the torch. Uh, again, they had some different comments from people after the Joe match. Um, they said, let me just see here. It's being called a match of the year contender. Torch correspondent Paul Sosnowski, which you guys may know as the Green Lantern fan, the man who got the finger from Joe, writes, I have been in attendance for many great matches in Ring of Honor history, but I have not been this emotionally invested in a match since Paul London versus Danielson on April 13, 2003 for their two out of three falls match. The crowd heat was insane, rooting with all their hearts for both men. Simply a fantastic match. Uh, Torch contributor Derek Bergen reports, the match had an epic feel to it and the intensity displayed by both men just added to the overall effect. Fucking incredible in every way imaginable. Uh, live reports, Dave Meltzer said that based on live reports, it was said to be the best mat- title match in the history of the company, rated between four and four and a half stars from our different reports. Um, some people called it the company's best match of the year. And then finally, weeks later, Dave gave his own thoughts because he eventually got a tape and he wrote, I saw the October 2nd Samoa Joe versus Brian Danielson Ring of Honor title match from Philadelphia on the Midnight Express reunion tape. And then Dave writes in brackets, the reunion was fun. Then he goes, I'd give Joe Danielson four stars. It was better than Kenta versus Naomichi Marafuji, but not as good as Kensuke Sasaki versus Hiroshi Tanahashi. It was an excellent match for the Ring of Honor crowd, and that's who they were performing for. So that was their job. But it's one of those matches that wouldn't have played well in front of a different audience. I hate when he says that. Yeah, I was going to say, Matt, it's a return of our old friend that we used to rant about in the early days of the show, where it seemed like every positive review Dave gave of a Ring of Honor show, Ring of Honor match, was ended by this wouldn't have played in front of a different audience. You know what You know what annoys me about that is that his argument is always, when he talks about older matches, like, oh, you know, they did the right match for the – it worked for the audience that night. And it's like, why does that not also apply to Ring of Honor matches? Yeah, and also that's your job is to do the best, like for your audience. Yeah, yeah, you know you, and clearly like both these guys, but especially Danielson has displayed that like he could wrestle matches for different lengths, different at styles for different larger audiences. But like the the goal was to make the best match for this audience, who was going to have a to- more tolerance for longer matches and mat work and things like that. Oh, I but, hate it. 
Yeah. So Dave, to be fair, Dave hadn't made a comment like that in a long time in this part of the Ring of Honor timeline. But that's our old old commenting Dave. Our old friend came back with that one. Um, Yeah, this is uh, just looking through my notes. But yeah, that's pretty much it. So after the match, Danielson sells. He's laying on the mat. Uh, Joe grabs his tile. He lays against the ropes, like I mentioned, selling exhaustion in a way he rarely does. The crowd chants for both men. There's applause for them. They're, they're really appreciative of the match they saw. Uh, da- Danielson actually offers his hand and the two shake. So even though Danielson has a couple heelish moments during the match, he still shakes Joe's hand. He, he's the one who offers it. Um, then immediately CM Punk's music hits. He walks to the ring. Uh, Punk gives both guys a little applause and he takes the mic as the crowd chants for him. Punk says, short and to the point, in June he became the only man in Ring of Honor that Samoa Joe couldn't beat. Punk says, I haven't gotten a rematch since then. And at that point, Danielson grabs the mic from Punk before he can finish. Brian says, he respects everything Punk just said, but he has never gone as hard against Samoa Joe as Danielson did tonight. Uh, Danielson asks Joe for one more title shot, but then Generation Next runs it and attacks Punk. And then you get this kind of funny visual where Generation Next is beating the crap out of Punk four-on-one. And Danielson and Joe are just kind of watching, like, not our problem, for like a while. But then Ares, of course, gets in Joe's face. He points at the belt. He wants it. Danielson kind of walks up to him, and then Danielson shoves, I mean, Ares shoves Danielson. This spurs Joe and Danielson to then finally attack Generation Next, help out Punk. But then Homicide's music hits. The lights go off, and when they come back on, Julia Smokes is holding the god-awful, ugly Ring of Honor title that they made for the night of uh, Punk Joe won that Homicide kidnapped on that night and we just thought was going to be forgotten about, but here Smokes is holding it. Um, the Rottweilers join in in the brawl. Punk does an ugly but full effort dive to the floor. Like he springboards off the ropes. It's one of the ugliest dives you've ever seen, but God bless Punk. He wanted to do it. Uh, everyone's brawling on the floor in the ring. Shelly does a top rope dive that no one really catches. It's, Felt bad for him. Ares does his tope. Homicide punches Jack Evans and then does his tope con hilo that he teased earlier in the night but didn't give. Evans, like you said, didn't do all his crazy stuff earlier. This is where he does a crazy, one of his usual crazy super rotation dives to the floor. Joe goes to do his tope elbow suicida, but low-key cuts him off and the two brawl with each other. Uh, Danielson actually is trying to break them up almost like, hey guys, get along, which is kind of weird, but uh, at that point, Joe elbows him like, stay out of our fight. So at that point, Danielson gets pissed. He takes out Joe with roaring elbows. Joe bails to the outside, and then Danielson kind of shares a... is alone in the ring with key. They kind of look at each other for a second. And then Danielson gets on the mic and he says, Joe, next time we come to Philly, it's going to be me and low key versus Joe and Liger. And before it had been announced that, uh, Liger's a p- partner for the tag match was going to be Joe. So this is Danielson making his, um, an official announcement that Loki is going to be his partner. That match will actually be in Jersey, but it's only like, like an, like 80 minutes away from that oh, yeah, location. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, good catch there. Yeah. I yeah. Up on that. Um, so I, I thought this was – this was really good in the sense that it tie – it like references so many existing angles and sets up so much of the next few months. The only thing is Gabe does this – like it, it, it's a bit of a pattern thing. Gabe, like Gabe doesn't do this all the time, but it's definitely not the first time we've seen the 800 different feuds all collide together and then everyone does a dive to end the show thing. 
and it's something that you know that was a trope of ECW. I think kind of that, like look at how many feuds that we're booking and how they all tie together. But at the same time, it is impressive because those feuds, a lot of these feuds, do kind of tie together. Like the Aries, wine, you know, the how Aries is wanting to challenge Joe, but then, you know, he shoves Danielson when they have a history and how, you know, Danielson and Key have a shared history and Danielson, you know, now has this history and Punk's involved. Like, it, there is a lot of stuff that's connecting in, in interesting ways, but it was a good ending. I just, I, I've seen this ending before, I feel like. Well, there was something similar at Reborn Stage 1, but I'm a sucker for these. Like, I think it was really good. I, I, I like how it all tied together. He doesn't he doesn't do it often enough for me to find it obnoxious. And I think it really worked for the live crowd here. And it just made everything feel important. So I, um, and I think everyone performed their role well. Um, you know, like, the one thing was, you know, they, they were doing that whole big, when, when, when Loki cut off Joe... Um, you know, they, the Gabe was like, oh, Loki and Joe, one-on-one in the ring. And, like, it was, like, their big setup for the, I think it was, like, the, like almost like their Taz versus Rob Van Dam match or Mike Awesome versus Rob Van Dam match. One of those matches that, like, they were building to forever that never came. You and you got you said something. I'll, I'll reference it in a minute, but yeah. you just said something, like, exactly like someone else said. Yeah, and, well, and I was going to say, like... Don't mirror the match that never to to tease the match that never came because it never came. Like you know, like like that's one thing that annoyed me about the whole low key versus Joe, like keeping them apart but together thing. It's like you should have known that if you waited too long, you weren't going to be able to do that match. And if you really wanted to do it, you should have done it sooner. Like it just it's just frustrating because I I feel like that match in that era would have been amazing, and they just never bothered. They just never got to it, and I'm just still a little bitter about it. <laughs> So, first off, I completely agree. We've talked about before that, like, I think we talked on Ring of Honor Reborn Completion, where Loki comes back and lays out Joe, that, like, this is kind of setting up for a Joe match, and it's it sucks because that was... I, that was the match I most wanted to see as a Ring of Honor fan, that second Joe Key match with the roles reversed and all that stuff. And we never get... And I, I hate that they kind of teased it. And I think we read, like... In, I think it was in the Observer at the time was where that note came from, but it was basically something like <clears throat> the, someone clearly probably Gabe told Dave, like we have no, even though we teased this, like we have no plans to ever do Joe versus Key. And I guess you could understand why because Key is kind of Joe's a valuable asset you want to protect, and Key's the kind of guy that has a history of not wanting to lose to certain guys when he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, and he's volatile, so he could leave your company any minute. But we were still mad, rightfully, I think, of like, well, don't tease it if you can't deliver it. But here's the weird thing, Matt. In doing research for this show, from The Observer, the same, I think, newsletter that told me that they weren't ever playing on it, this is what Dave wrote after this show. He, Meltzer writes, after the match, Loki again challenged Samoa Joe. The idea for right now is to save Joe versus Loki in singles as a dream match, similar to Paul Heyman saving Sabu versus Taz until the first pay-per-view. Uh, um, he says, for now, they are going to tease it in the uh, November 6th tag in Elizabeth, New Jersey with Liger and Joe versus Danielson and Loki. So we've gone within months from... Dave apparently being told, like, we have no plans to do this, to, yeah, we're saving it for, like, a dream match way down the line, which, again, they never get to. Yeah, it's like, I wonder if they just thought they were going to get pay-per-view at some point, like, and this would be their, like, their actual, I mean, uh, Taz versus Sabu, but nope. Yeah, so that actually kind of made it more disappointing, this idea that actually at one point it sounds like they were thinking that they were going to do this, and we still didn't get it, like, but... That's the end of the show, and another kind of unique thing is usually Ring of Honor shows end with 
promos. This is this angle ended the show. This was the last thing. So that is um, Midnight Express reunion. Matt, what'd you think about this show? I think I can predict what you thought based on the review. This isn't a show where I'm like, how do I add up what I felt like? I feel like there's a general uh, picture that emerges. <laughs> yeah, no, damn good show. Um, you know, great, um, great main event. Obviously, must see a couple other really good matches throughout. Um, one match that I did not like at all, but you really did, so that makes it even better for. Uh, and um, you know, and a, and a nice, you know, nice Midnight Express reunion. Um, um, yeah, I, I, and the booking was good, as we mentioned a bunch of times. Um, this was one of the better shows probably that they had ever done at this point, um, up and down the show. I, this was, you know, high on a, on a high-tier ROH show as of October 2004. I don't know if it was the best show of the year, um, but it's. I think it, it would be reasonable to put it in the conversation. I feel like a lot of shows we've been watching lately, we've been like, this is a really fun show to watch because the booking has been great and the wrestling was like really good but not great up and down the card i feel like this show still had that booking but then you had a great main event and you know some close to great matches up and you know on the card with especially a couple guys really breaking through you know with lethal's performance and nigel's performance and the midnight express thing was was fun it was done i think well in terms of how those things can can go and yeah and it, it just it felt like a better version, you know, of, of, of shows we've been watching lately. Like it had a f- little bit more going, if anything, the booking actually was probably, even though some parts of the booking were great that you pointed out and even the ending angle did a good job. Th- if anything, that I actually have a bone to pick with the booking that we haven't had on recent shows, which is just, this felt like a show where the, um, the amount of interference got a little bit too much and too often. And even the, uh, that this the eight man elimination, you know, the sound of the booking maybe wasn't the greatest, but still overall very good booking, great wrestling. Actually, um, I th- I thought of one other bone to pick if I can throw that in there. Go ahead, go ahead. Um, I think for a match on the level of Danielson versus Joe that had been building for so long, they should have had promos by the two wrestlers before it talking about what the match means because neither guy really ever did a promo about this match. So, hey, hey. Oh, sorry, so sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, did they ever really focus on the fact that they were one and one in Ring of Honor before? Because like, you would think that's something you should really sell, like, especially when the whole Punk thing was like, Joe couldn't beat Punk in their last match. Well, Danielson actually beat Joe once in Ring of Honor. Yeah, the, the announcers did mention it. I, I know Nolte did um, at the early in the match. But no, yeah. but but no, there were no promos. And like... I don't know. Don't you think that like these guys should have like cut a promo on each other and been like, "This is a really important match. Here's why it's important, and here's what I'm going to do, and here's what it means to me." Yeah, I, I think that would have gone a long way. Even you know, like we looked at the Nigel match tonight, where just him doing a little bit of a different celebration made that feel bigger. If you know, for certain matches, you should try and make things seem a little different, a little bigger. Exactly. Yeah, but still, great show. You know, good job everyone that was involved with it. Um, and that brings us to the end of the show. You can contact us through the years at gmail.com. Uh, one thing, I, and it's through, spelled T-H-R-O-H. One thing I'm going to ask for, this is kind of an odd request. I asked for footage and stuff from Ring of Honor fans once before, and it came through. I don't know if this will work. This is going to be a very weird request, but um, <laughs> there was a site called Declaration of Independence in the early to mid-2000s, a horrible website where bitter, angry people 
said horrible things about wrestlers. They also made a few shoot interviews, and one of them was a shoot interview with Ref Hansen from Ring of Honor. And without giving too much away, Ref Hansen does something in a couple show in a few shows that gets him fired from the company, and then he does a shoot interview largely about it. I can't find that shoot interview anywhere. If anyone has access to it, I can get by without. I've actually a recap of some of that shoot, but in my quest to turn over every st- stone because I have a problem. If anyone actually has access to that, please email us. I would love to uh, get a listen or a watch of that in. That, that I realize this is probably a very niche thing that no one has, but just in case. Um, if, our- if the listeners of any podcast would have that, it would be ours. <laughs> exactly. Um, at Trevor Dame on Twitter is my Twitter. At Mayor MGF is Matt's. Um, we have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs Forum. And next, I have a Patreon that's really stupid at www.patreon.com slash Mecca Mecca. That's M-E-C-C-A, twice in a row. And finally, the show we'll be covering next time, Matt, is a Ring of Honor B-show. It is technically the 50th show of Ring of Honor, which is why it's called Ring of Honor Gold, which means it's also our 50th show, Matt. I have no idea how we'll celebrate. But, Matt, I'm going to give you a little revelation here. Yes. This is the rare Ring of Honor show. I have never seen this show before. Damn. All right. I'm looking forward to that one, then. I'm going into gold cold, Matt. And (laughs) it does have a uh, multi-man... It's very much a B-show. It's Samoa Joe versus uh, Rocky Romero for the title. You do get Punk versus Homicide in a singles match. And you do get a big... Another big tag, Gen Next tag in the main event. And... But we will see... Is gold as good as gold? We'll find out. So... Until next time, just treat people decently, please, for the love of fucking God. <laughs> it's just, if I have to come back for a fifth straight episode of the show and say, well, now everyone has, like, airborne, like, racism disease, like, do not make it so that next time we do this show, I don't have to say things have gotten even worse for the fourth straight time. Please, I beg of you, be a good person to each other. And until next time, when you do that, have a good time. Have a great time.